well, the funny thing is a lot of the talk, a lot of the TV shows that are popular on the streaming shows, they're really not much more than people talking. Talking, yeah. But uh, I guess they have the production values to make that tolerable to the audience, you know. And they look, you know, the images impressive enough and, and uh, you know, I guess the actors are personable enough. So why, did, why didn't that work with uh, Star Trek, the motion picture? Uh, are we beginning now? Is we can, yes. That's our, That's my segue, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Even William Shatner said that uh, it was sluggish after he watched the premiere. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, uh, back when they were making Star Trek, the motion picture, uh, that was after Star Wars. And uh, so there was a lot of attention to the, the word that was coming from the set about the problems they were having. It was a troubled production pretty much from the jump. Uh, started, I guess, initially they were thinking about doing a, a Star Trek movie. And then they decided, no, we'll do a Star Trek TV show. And I guess they had a, a significant amount of development on that TV show. I forget what it was called, Phase 2 or something like that. Something like that, yeah. And they had gotten, I, I think uh, I read that they got most of the original cast back. I don't think uh, William Shatner was involved. Maybe Leonard Nimoy wasn't involved either. I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, they actually went to the uh, extent of building sets and casting uh, people, new, new, new characters. Persis Kambada, who's in this movie, she was originally supposed to be in that series. Um, another fellow was supposed to play a, a Spock-like character in, the, uh, in this proposed series. He was worked into uh, the opening scenes of Star Trek, the motion picture, not playing a Vulcan, playing uh, one of the people that is on that space station that see the uh, Klingons being destroyed by right. the uh, V'ger cloud. So he got a little bit of attention for that, but I don't, I don't know if he ever went on to anything else. Uh, I guess that, that's an example of how, how cruel Hollywood can be. Right? One minute you're a star of a TV show. Yeah. <laughs> Next minute you're just a small blip at the beginning of a movie. <laughs> right. But uh, I, had, I, I was a big f- fan of Star Trek, and I can prove it just by... <laughs> holding up a few items here's the little program this goes to show you how unsophisticated they were when they started the star trek conventions this was actually the fifth one they had i guess it was in 1976 and uh, it was in new york um, and uh, they had a full roster of events uh january 16th to 19th in 1976 in one of the hotels uh I'm not sure what hotel it was in. Anyway, I attended this and I, I bought some tribbles that are long since right, fall, yeah. fall, fall to pieces. <laughs> and uh, about the only piece of memorabilia that I have other than that little program is the bags, which have oh, nice. these rather weak sketches of the uh, artists. And this is the motto that I guess everybody back at that time was trying to convince themselves that right. this was true, that Star Trek still lives. But it was only when word got out that they were thinking of doing a movie and that, that you know, that, that was actually going forward because of the success of Star Wars and Close Encounters. Yeah. Uh, then it was like magazines like Fangoria doing these articles, almost constant articles. Uh, these are the sister, that's the sister publication. Star Log, yeah, I remember that one. This one has an article in it. Well, William Shatner says uh, that as far as he's concerned, the whole thing is dead that his contract with Paramount has ended. And as far as he's concerned, he's not doing the movie. 
So that's the sort of stuff you're constantly hearing. They actually had columns from particular people. Uh, the person who wrote the column in, in the Starlog issue actually went on and wrote it. Uh, the making of Star Trek, the motion picture with Gene Roddenberry, a book that's still available on Fair. Amazon. Uh, so there was a lot of talk. And when the movie finally came out, uh, the first day that it opened, I think, was a major snowstorm in New York. And I, being a dedicated Trek fan, uh, actually went and stood for a half hour at the local <laughs> bus station, hoping that maybe a bus would come along, you know, with snow up to here. Yeah open that we can get into that because it was done as a roadshow uh, release. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. They don't do it anymore. But back in the 50s and 60s, if they had big prestigious movies that they really wanted to, you know, make a big deal out of, they would have uh, select theaters and reserve seating. Uh, and they usually did it for like big musicals and things yeah. like that. And they usually did it in theaters like Radio City Music Hall that had a thousand seats. So they weren't, uh, you know, they, um, they I guess they still kind of do that now, but more of like, you know, I always, I remember seeing trailers and it would, you know, talk about movies are premiering in New York and LA first, yeah. right. And before it comes worldwide or whatever. Nowadays they do that for indie films that really can't afford wide releases, uh, and movies that they're not confident will do particularly well in wide release. But, uh, I guess it was Jaws that was the and Jaws and Star Wars were the ones that made the studios realize that doing the small, slow, slow uh, release, you know, start mm -hmm. here and, and expand, that that really wasn't smart because you could conceivably make back, as they do now routinely, you could make back your whole production budget. In the weekend. In the weekend, right. <laughs> yeah. You have a big hit, right? So uh, Jaws and Star Wars pretty much ended that. Uh, Robert Wise had a little experience with Roadshow Productions because he did Sound of Music and he did West Side Story. Well, I assume both of those were probably roadshow presentations. Uh, as a matter of fact, you can almost know for sure just by looking to see if it has an overture at the beginning of the movie, yeah. uh, which they did here rather foolishly, I think. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so uh, that combination of uh, a major snowstorm and the fact that it was reserved seating and it was only one theater in, uh, you know, one or two theaters in Manhattan, I think it was actually the Paramount Theater in the Gulf and Western building uh, that was running it. That was back when Paramount was owned by Gulf and Western, the oil company. Uh, so in their big uh, complex, they had this little theater, which was actually underground. You had to go in this little concrete hole in the ground and go down escalator. And at the at the end of the show, they, the ushers would actually chase you out, which I thought was kind of stupid because yeah. it's not like the motion picture. <laughs> After the first weekend, there was hardly anybody in the theater. But anyway, I finally managed to get in when the, when the snow subsided, and I got my program to prove that I was there on the first day, uh, or in, in the first weekend at least. And uh, I guess again. Uh, with Superman and with like a couple of the other movies that I had programs for that we've discussed, uh, usually I got my first indication of what might be wrong with the movie just right, by looking yeah. at the program. First thing that made me question whether or not we were going to be in for some rough, rough sailing was this picture of the aliens. I'm going to try to see if I can get this positioned here. Now, <clears throat> most of these aliens never really show up uh, in the movie. Right. Uh, so these were probably like background characters for that big uh, crew uh, assembly scene. But this guy here, 
I can see what a guy's on TV gets. Yeah. So. <laughs> this guy here. Uh, right there. This guy. He has, he's not, he's wearing obviously a like Halloween mask and he's got, uh, you know, it's like a, just a pullover mask with holes for the eyes and he's, his arms aren't made up to match his face. So I assume these characters were not meant to be seen prominently in the film and they yeah, are. I said, I could barely make it out, but it reminds me of the, uh, the people from the uh, man cave uh, episode. Yeah. Well, the people with the pulsing brain, <laughs> that's just what right. it reminded me of. It looks like it might be, but that, I, that actually was a pretty decent makeup job. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the only, <laughs> the only character here that actually gets any real screen time is the Klingon. Yeah. Uh, anyway, th that made me worry. And then when I saw the opening credits, I worried a, a bit more because uh, apparently they were so rushed to get this movie out. It was uh, really just, whatever we can throw together. Michael Eisner, who was involved somehow, I don't know where, what position he had at Paramount at the time, but he was in, in charge in, in some way. A guy that would go on and have such great success at Disney. Disney, yeah. He was quoted as saying that he, 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 we have a, a date, the movie's gonna be out. Uh, I don't care if we send out Black Leader. Uh, Black Leader is just a blank film. Yeah. You know? uh, and the opening credits actually are pretty close to Black Leader. Yeah. Uh, because they just have white letters on a black background. Uh, but Jerry Goldsmith's music, I guess probably important to mention right off the top, is really the best thing in this movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he, he saved their ass because without that music, this movie would not work at all. You know, it is only because he, his music is so insistent that something dramatic and wonderful is happening that uh, there is any drama, uh, drama in this movie at all. Right? It's, com it's a complete... Uh, blood, completely bloodless thing. And I'm really happy to see that this movie's getting a lot of new attention and a lot of young folks who didn't see the movie in the theaters originally and who didn't go through that extraordinary, uh, almost traumatic disappointment uh, that I suffered, which is... Yeah. <laughs> Uh, now, now do you do you enjoy the movie now or did you enjoy well, it? well i enjoyed watching it but it's still a very flawed movie yeah. and, and many of the same flaws that existed then are, still exist and uh, you know uh, the idea of sort of trying to uh, uh, fix the color a little bit because they didn't really do much work on the on the color timing for, for the original release for the obvious reasons they were rushed they didn't have time for that so everything is kind of pale and 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 uh, bluish in a way they were ahead of their time with that uh, there's a lot of movies that intentionally uh, go for that now but uh, the this 4k version which is really just a sort of uh, uh, fixed up version of the director's cut that was put yeah. out i guess about uh, is it 20 years ago now something like that yeah uh, that, that was the one where Robert Wise, the director, said, I'm going to fix this. He, I guess he asked Paramount for permission to, to do a director's cut. So I guess he felt it was a little embarrassing that that movie had gone out that way. <laughs> yeah. uh, so uh, he did his uh, version of it, which was well received. Everybody agreed that it was an improvement. Uh, but they did apparently in standard definition because it was only going to be released on DVD. So this time uh, they've... Uh, up, upgraded or upresed it to uh, to 4K, and they've done proper uh, color correction. Yeah. They've done a little judicious editing uh, to take out some extraneous stuff. Uh, they've wisely removed all that extra footage that had been added for the ABC uh, telecast of the movie, 
uh, because ABC was so desperate just to have a longer movie so they could sell more advertising time that they didn't notice that there were some scenes where the special effects hadn't been completed. Right. So there's one uh, notorious uh, scene uh, with uh, Kirk coming in a coming out of the Enterprise in a spacesuit, and you can see like rafters and and two two by fours <laughs> right. where there should have been a matte painting, you know, of the rest of the Enterprise. So that was remarkable. And I guess they were thinking when they ran that on TV, TV is in standard definition, nobody's going to be able to notice. Right. I bet most people probably didn't notice. But they still, probably didn't. Still kind of amazing that anybody would do something, that any, you know, a network would run a movie like that. But that just is sort of emblematic of the whole problem with this movie is that it's it's uh, very all very sloppily done. I don't know you could spend the rest of your life listening to all the different stories that are being told, all the different points of view of the different people that were involved of what went wrong and how this ended up becoming such a shit show. But it, it, it sure does look like there just was uh, a, a lack of a sort of unifying vision of what they should yeah. be going for. Or to put it another way, the two guys who were providing uh, some vision, Gene Roddenberry and Robert Wise, their visions conflicted and uh, uh, their visions were wrong. Uh, you right, know, yeah. uh, Robert Wise was wrong to take the sort of cold uh, 2001 Space Odyssey approach to this. That's not the type of movie that this should be. That's not no. the type of story Star Trek is ever going to be. You know? no. See, I'd never seen, I'd never watched the original series. I didn't watch it growing up. So I didn't watch, I didn't even watch these movies until uh, late 90s, probably even like mid 90s. I think uh, I think the Next Generation movie had just come out. Oh, really? But I was living I was living with a friend. He had the VHS box set of the Star Trek motion pictures, and I sat down and watched all of them, and I enjoyed it. I was like, man, this is really good. I really like it. And then I went and got the Next Generation movie. <clears throat> really enjoyed that, but I still never watched the shows. Just I was just a fan of the movies. <clears throat> it wasn't until later on that I watched the like the original series, and then right. started getting into uh, Next Generation. Well, so, if you I was, so I wasn't comparing this movie to the original series at that time when I watched it. Watching it now, <laughs> when I watched it the other day, and I'm just like picking it apart, and <laughs> I was I was like, I really want to like this. I mean, I still like it. Well, that's but I, it. I, I yeah, do have a lot of problems with it. You want to like it? I, I, that is true. And and nowadays, I I showed it actually to a, a friend of mine who had never seen it before and is not really a big Star Trek person. And he quite liked it. Uh, he, yeah. he thought he thought it was very, uh, you know, very, very nice, a very nice movie. You know, yeah. uh, has a has a good heart, I guess you could say. But uh, I do agree with the the long scenes at the. I mean, I know it's okay. It's this was what ten years after the TV show ended, right? Right. So well, was, that's where that's when it was made. Yeah. Uh, according to the movie, I think it's, it's only four years be, later. Right. Yeah, four so. years. But I mean, I get it. It's you know Star Trek. It's on the first time on the big screen. We're gonna awe you with like the you know the Enterprise flying over. But it's like, do you need a ten minute scene of the shuttlecraft yeah. you know flying by? And it's like I, we really don't need that. that. They you know they've already done that in two thousand one. Right. Well, that's, but that that, that kind of slow that really slows it down. Yeah, and it also sort of indicates. You know, let's face it: when you're watching a movie, you're always looking for signs that there there's no there there. You know, there's yeah. no story. And that really is the central problem here. There's no story, really. I mean, it's the vaguest suggestion of a plot. But when you have a movie like this, and it takes you an hour just to get the, you know, them out in space, and, and yeah. 
that's, you know, and all the things that happen that, are, that would provide any sort of spark of energy or, or uh, excitement, they're all like silly things that shouldn't happen, like a transporter accident. That was a terrible mistake, you know. You, you don't want your hero uh, to be indirectly responsible for a horrible, agonizing death yeah. of two innocent crew members. That's not a good way to make your audience like your your hero right now let me ask you this about kirk do you see if you agree with me about kirk original series he was obviously cocky and he always won in this movie he kind of seemed like a pompous asshole <laughs> <laughs> you know i'm taking i'm taking the shit back over and right. you know i just, no, I I know, it, just it seemed like a little bit more like they were, they were comparing looking that character to the show it's fake conflict yeah it's, we, we don't have a story so we can't do we can't have a the, our established Kirk going out and conf confronting whatever that problem is yeah. because we don't have anything for him to confront. So instead they do the internal stuff. Oh, he's insecure. He's not, he, he wants to get the ship back and, you know, and all that sort of thing. He's not sure if he can handle it anymore. And, uh, and they did a little bit of that in the second one as well with him being unsure about being too old and some yeah. discussion about whether or not he should have ever accepted the uh, Admiralty. Uh, but, that is just sort of like a sidelight as we are actually having an adventure, you know? Yeah. This is space adventure. This is find something in space and, and grapple with it, deal with it, whatever problem it presents. And in order to do that effectively, you have to have all your uh, characters, all your hero, hero, all the folks on your hero side have to be established and secure in their place so that the audience feels comfortable with them. We don't, we don't want to see this business with Kirk screwing some guy out of his captain's <laughs> chair. Yeah. That doesn't make us feel good about him. Uh, the uh, When I was watching it, I was thinking this sort of reflects possibly what Gene Roddenberry was going through because there was a lot of political stuff that went on uh, in the course of the years of Star Trek. You know? right. And um, uh, also... I, I sort of the way the dynamic that you see here reminds me of like the disaster movies. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw Airport, the first of the I guess it was the first of the big disaster movies. Yeah, I think I've I think I've seen all of those. I'm a big natural disaster and air. Disaster oh, I am too. Movie. We, should, yeah. we should do it. We should <laughs> do an episode yeah. sometime. But the the sort of formula that they usually had uh, certainly with that first film, uh, Airport, was. Um, uh, guys that are established they're powerful men and they're in competition with each other and and they're also sleeping with their female subordinates or having an affairs with their female subordinates and that and they're doing it all in, in very similar surroundings i mean the enterprise sort of looks like the airport <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, uh the uh that whole idea of like middle-aged men uh, powerful guys uh, dealing with office politics and their little romances and you know maybe they're like in in uh, an airport I guess it's Burt Lancaster he's uh, having an affair with his secretary right and yeah. I guess I guess his, he's estranged from his wife and Dean Martin is the the pilot on the plane that is the focus of the story he's sleeping with his stewardess <laughs> yeah. also married guy you know cheating on his wife and all of that is sort of intermingled with all the all the sort of power stuff you know of uh, who's in charge and whether or not people are following orders and you know 
and so that's what it comes through here in this movie. It's really all about like office politics on yeah. the enterprise. And it's not a very pleasant thing to see, you know. And it also, I would say, is not not really uh, in keeping with the sort of optimistic vision that Gene Ronberry supposedly had. Right. And that was one of the things that the people on Next Generation always complained about was that he insisted that um, the conflict had to come from outside. It, it couldn't be amongst the characters. Everybody was supposed to get along. Uh, I, I, I can see why that would be a problem for a TV series, but for this movie, it probably would have been a better approach. I don't know why he went against his own idea. He maybe didn't think he was, but rather than dealing with all the sort of interpersonal stuff, why not establish the establish the characters you don't really need to because folks were still watching the tv show yeah <laughs> it's not like we have to be reintroduced to these characters and we don't have to have them coming back it's not like they're senior citizens at that point they were still fairly young people yeah. they didn't look that much different from the way we remember them uh so you don't really need to put too much work into reestablishing the characters uh, get, get start the movie with them all in place just as remember them yeah and they yeah. should yeah they should have just already come in because you got the Forrest Kelly shows up, and of course you got the beard, and yeah, and you got to go through they, all that stuff. The, the whole thing of him not wanting to go, you know, teleporting, then he doesn't want to go into space and all that, and, right. and particularly, go, and then, it's like they're not even paying attention to the the scenes that are before and after each scene, right? As, yeah, uh, they uh, I forget how what the sequence of events is, but it, it sort of makes his criticism of the transporter seem a little less amusing than <laughs> to people horribly die yeah <laughs> and it couldn't and they and they emphasize how agonizing the death is oh uh what 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 we got back didn't live didn't very live long, long. yeah oh, well, thankfully yeah. The, this is supposed to be a, a clean uh, uh you know uh, uh everything in its place future like a utopia where everything works and for no reason that has to do with the story that they're telling, they have this problem. That's this one mishap, that, yeah. yeah. You're never supposed to have something like that happen incidentally. Uh, you know, it's one thing to say, well, the captain, the transporter isn't working, and that adds a little extra drama or suspense to your yeah. story. But to just for shits and giggles, kill off two characters, or just to clear a space, for Mr. Spock to come back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kill off two characters, but a transporter malfunction happens once in the movie for no reason that anybody really knows other than the fact that Captain Kirk is forcing them to get going yeah. faster. And then he follows that up with a, almost another disaster, right? By oh, with the to, wormhole. Right. He, so he, he, he has the, uh, the transporter malfunction. He gets his, them into a wormhole. And then he's about to use the phasers until the guy tells him they can't, shouldn't do that. Now, I don't know if they were suggesting, I guess they were, that because the phasers were uh, passed through the engine, sounds like a really wonky way. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. but I guess the idea is that, I mean, what he actually says in the movie is that the uh, phasers, uh, unbeknownst to Captain Kirk, the phasers are going to be passing through the warp core or whatever they're in yeah right? uh so they wouldn't work that's what he says he says words to that effect so that wouldn't work right okay so that wouldn't be a catastrophic situation right right but then then immediately i mean it just means that the phases wouldn't work it might mean that the meteor or whatever that's they're heading towards is going to hit them but 
the, the, the then Kirk says, "Oh, you so you should save the ship." He climbs down off his high horse. Yeah. Uh, well, if it was just a question of the phasers not working, you don't really shouldn't really have that dramatic scene. Why couldn't he simply say to Kirk? Oh, you can't use the phases. They're not working. Use the... Instead of... (laughs) Rushing over and grabbing, you know, starting to play with Chekhov's buttons and everything. It's like, well, why was this trip really necessary? Uh, And and that whole business in the warp core or or the the wormhole, that is all fake drama too, right? Yeah. So let's have a smeary effect and that'll... That'll convince people. That I mean, that was like just it. that was just after what, like twenty minutes of just trying to get the engines to work, right? Right. So, just like yeah. no problems here. He's they got a lot of problems, and, and uh, when Decker steps forward and and prevents, I guess we're meant to assume that if he, they'd used the phases, something terrible would have happened. Yeah. Okay, so we'll we'll go with that. So. Uh, once then Kirk takes him to his uh, briefing room and chews him out or is preparing to chew him out. Uh, And I don't, I don't think, see the thing, the thing about Kirk and Picard is that they're sort of like organization men. They're the top of an organization. They rely on the people underneath them to do their jobs. They don't, they're not in competition. Yeah. It's like, shut up, Mr. Spock. I'm in control here. You know, that's not the sort of thing you get from him. It's, Mr. Spock, what do you think? What should we do now? What are your suggestions? Right? And they did that all through the show. Right? Picard continued that tradition. You got situations where, uh, Captain, it's, it, we're going to, the whole universe is blowing up in 30 seconds. <laughs> Turn around. What do you think we should do? Suggestions. Yeah. You know, uh, that's the sort of guy you want to have in control. You don't want somebody who is, so desperate to hold on to control or to hold on to the appearance of control that he's ignoring people that are saying, don't do that because everything's going to blow up, right? That's not the guy you want. And it's not our Kirk. Right, yeah. Kirk would know better than that. And Kirk would certainly know better having, you know, fell on his ass that way. Now, this is like the second time since he's been on the ship to then chew out the guy instead of turning to him and say, why'd you do that? Yeah. Know, come to my briefing room immediately. <laughs> That's not our Kirk. Uh, and I also uh, was a little uh, something less uh, important, I guess. Uh, but it sure doesn't feel less important. That fucking toupee. I don't know. Yeah, no. You know, Captain uh, William Shatner was on uh, Star Trek for three years, and he did a lot of public uh, personal appearances during that time, and. Uh, and his, nobody would have ever been able to tell if you didn't say he's wearing a toupee. Nobody would have ever known. Right. It was a great toupee. Now, I realized that in the TV show, it was a very stylized presentation, the lighting and heavy makeup on everybody. So maybe you wouldn't notice if somebody was wearing a toupee. Yeah. I mean, everybody in the cast is wearing a hairpiece of some kind. right? Uh, but in this movie, he's got that thing that looks like a Persian cat sitting on his head. <laughs> There's nothing, and it's even worse than the original version of the motion picture. I, I think by darkening the picture and by uh, ch- changing the skin tones a little bit, uh, it hides it a little bit. But it's like his head is like this. <laughs> yeah. There's no place where the hair is coming out. It's just all sort of, you know, hanging there like a piece of lettuce. 
<laughs> I don't know why. How could they look at that and say, "Okay, that looks it, good." Yeah, that's good. Well, <laughs> I, time to shoot. And how could it possibly be so hard for a movie that costs supposedly around fifty million dollars to get a decent wig for yeah, the nice. star in the film? You know, and and you can't blame the Shatner, right? Uh, actually, he's in the best shape he he had been in in years. You know, he pulled himself together. He looks, you know, he looks like a movie star. Yeah. Except for that damn wig. And it seems to change from shot to shot. <laughs> the other thing that's ridiculous about this movie is because they realized that the whole movie takes place on the bridge of the Enterprise or in the Enterprise mm -hmm. sets. And so they were so desperate to try to liven things up that they had the characters going through this almost hilarious parade of costume changes. Yeah. Like, like Captain Kirk is a different costume to wear every room in the show. Yeah, that was one of my notes when I was watching it today. I was like, I don't know. Like, the the uniforms in this movie seemed more outdated than the than what the original series. Yes, like, they the, the, These are dated. But I still don't know if they're my, if they're the, if they're the worst or my favorite <laughs> uniforms because whenever spock shows up in his i'm like well that one there that, that one looks pretty good yes but everybody else is wearing like 70s like knit sweater fabric and i'm just like yeah why would very... you do that <laughs> one, one of the critics said he looked like a muscular dentist <laughs> yeah the, the mis big mistake of course and I, i'm coming up on my 60th birthday soon so i really know what i'm talking about here <laughs> once, once you get past a certain age it isn't flattering to have wide open collars yeah for people you know and uh they seem to be taking the cue from people like bob guccione or you hefner yeah the only thing know? missing was the a gold chain <laughs> to hang in the and chest actually, there. McCoy, when he shows up, <laughs> he's got the bin, he's got the chain, he's got something yeah. hanging around his head, and he's got <laughs> yeah. a big tuft of hair. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a visit to the to uh, the, uh, the Playboy Mansion. Yeah. Uh, but if you, uh, I mean, we, we expect that certain uh, trends in design and in fashion are going to show up in, in any every movie. It's sort of inevitable, right? Yeah. But a person who's doing the costumes for a science fiction movie, the first thing they should say is anything that's popular now, we can't use. Can't like, use, yeah. Like open collar. There's a couple of folks that are wearing, that had the collar open, you know, that's not like Saturday Night Fever. That yeah. It became very popular for a while. I don't think I've seen any bell bottoms, but I really wasn't paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the other absurdity is the costumes that they have the security personnel in. Yeah. I mean, we went through three years uh, on Star Trek and the security personnel usually just wore a red shirt so you can tell who's yep. going to die soon. Yeah. Uh, and this, they got them wearing like old-fashioned football, football helmets, helmets yeah. or, or wrestling, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And they're wearing, what do they call those shoes that the, I guess the women like uh, Uggs? Is that what oh, they yeah. They look like they're wearing Uggs. Yeah. You know, they're, they're sort of big puffy shoes. And they just look ridiculous. And you think to yourself, these folks are going to stand around like that all the time. All the time, yeah. <laughs> are they expecting trouble? Well, what what sort of use is that? Like they're guarding a bank for crazy. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't know why they would even need this movie. This storyline didn't need any kind of any kind of like military. So why even put them in there? Well, I think what it is, <clears throat> the director and the fifteen thousand writers that were <laughs> desperately trying to come up with a story. Uh, so when it became clear that nobody had any sort of uh, overarching vision of what this was supposed to be about, you have all the production designers and costume people sort of throwing their little two cents in. 
and nobody's there to swat it down and say, no, 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 that's yeah. stupid. Like for instance, and you don't see this much in this version of the movie. I, I took a brief look at the original version and there might be more of it in it, but in the Enterprise bridge above uh, Captain Kirk's uh, chair, there's a glass dome that looks like a, a salad bowl that's been mm -hmm. stuck to the ceiling and it's filled with what looks like piss. <laughs> and apparently the idea that some genius came up with was that that was like a level in a carpenter's level. Uh -huh. you'd, you'd be able to tell if the ship was, <laughs> ship was level. <laughs> by looking at the water. Now that is a stupid fucking idea. Yeah. You got a, 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 a spaceship practically overflowing with blinking beeping technology <laughs> and you need a goddamn uh, bowl of water over your head yeah. dumb as can be and why if you are if you're if the ship is going this ways and you're falling on your ass why would you need to, to check look, the yeah. water <laughs> stupid also the business with the armrests that come together over yeah yeah his thighs that won't work that won't work no. If you if you hit something that's hard enough that you need a restraint to hold you in your chair, you don't want the restraints to be on your thighs. No, no. <laughs> your whole body is going to go forward and your legs are going to get broken or oh, yeah. badly bruised, at least. The other thing is they go to the effort of showing us Captain Kirk applying those things when they when things get hairy. But then they show you some shots of the other side of the Enterprise Bridge. And there's a bunch of folks standing at their post. <laughs> yeah. They don't even have chairs. Yeah. What do they do? You know, I mean, are they supposed to just sort of hang on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, or they probably have like straps, like a subway. Uh, probably, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that that's just you know they're not thinking. They're not. There's not a. I mean, Nicholas Meyer, God bless him. And I, I, I guess it's kind of a cliche now to say how he was the guy that saved uh, Star Trek, but he was the director on Wrath of Khan. Uh, Harv Bennett who probably deserves as much credit as somebody we don't really hear about that much. He's passed away a couple of years ago, I guess, but he was a producer of TV stuff. I mean, his great contribution to Western civilization up to that point was being involved with the mod squad and $6 million man. Yeah. And I guess it was because of the $6 million man that when Paramount was looking for some way to immortize all the, you know, all this junk that they had that they collected to make the Star Trek, the motion picture, they said, do something cheap. You can do it cheap, come up with something and do it. And he got the job and he wrote a, a story or a screenplay. And then that got, went through different ver versions. And I guess Nicholas Meyer contributed to it as well. But the vision was there right from the start. Uh, you could see Nicholas Meyer had opinions about things. He wanted things to look a certain way. And, and he, for instance, brought, uh, brought back the uh, something closer to the original tr transporter beam. I don't know why they thought that that was necessary to change for the motion picture. I don't know. Uh, you know, I mean, that was a perfectly good special effect. You could do a slightly better version if you have a $50 million movie. <laughs> yeah. Why do you need to re completely redesign the beam? You know, uh, they, and, and other things like uh, at, their, at where their belt buckle would be if they had a belt. Uh, they have these black boxes. Yeah. I'm going to show you my toy. I okay. Only, I only survive it. <laughs> that sounds like a terrible thing to say in the middle of a podcast. That's <laughs> like a Harvey Weinstein. Uh, yeah. I'm going to show you my toy. Now, this, this is the only piece of Star Trek uh, memorabilia other than the books 
that I still have. I have that one, but I couldn't find it. Oh yeah. And then I've got. I mean, it's probably packed up somewhere. And then I've got. Oh, my, you got a I've phaser. got my phaser. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and does it work? Does it? Do yeah. Anything? Well, I need I need to get batteries in, but it oh. does. It does light up and make sound effects. And amazingly, this has been in storage in a cardboard box uh, in a corner uh, of my room for must be ten years now. Yeah. Still works. Yep. So they're fresh and running. So yep. I don't know what sort of magnificent batteries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, in Star Trek the Motion Picture, uh, they replaced these with that silly thing on their arms. Right. Which looks like uh, the sort of bracelet that they put on winos in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and they have something similar to this, roughly their shape, but it's right in the center of their where, the, where their belt would be. Right. And I was reading that that was supposed to be some sort of bio mon monitor that the doctors on the ship, and I guess the uh, uh, nurse chapel has become a doctor. <laughs> yeah. Happens, right? That happens all the time. <clears throat> Nurses are working their way towards being doctors. That's the way it works. Anyway, I guess her, her and Dr. McCoy, they, they'll, they'll have to fight it out. But uh, apparently the, the information from these little bio monitors uh, can be read by them so they can make sure everybody is uh, healthy. Yeah. Never is used in the movie that I know. Nope. So why bother? Why bother spending money having dozens, maybe hundreds of these made up? Waste of money, right? Yep. Why do they waste money on stuff like this? Because nobody knew what they were doing. Nobody <laughs> yeah. had any vision. Nobody had any story. I mean, if you have a great script, you could say, oh, we need this. We need that. We need Somebody does a breakdown on the script. You know, all the props you need. You don't have people throwing a bunch of silly shit onto the set that doesn't make any sense anyway uh the, that's the uh we we covered uh captain kirk's toupee we <laughs> covered his silly the silly armrests in the chair one of the things about having that little silly looking chair that scrawny looking chair is that in the original series that chair was iconic as well oh yeah you know people wanted a chair like that oh right? yeah because it suggested power and it suggested somebody who was in complete control, right? He had everything right in front of him. He could speak to everybody on the ship and, and you know, all of, I don't know what else he could do. Order. A, he was the head of the household. Right. And he had his a little, little corner. He's got his remote for the exactly. TV. That's <laughs> or you could say it's like a king's throne. There you right? go. Yeah. Now, some people might say, well, that's not the right tone. We don't want any suggestion that he's superior to other people or royalty or anything like that. But yes, you do. This is a drama. Yeah. <laughs> people want to see who's in charge, right? The whole idea, this is true of, uh, of James Bond. It's true of Sherlock Holmes. We want to see people who are good at what they do. Yeah. We want to see competent people. That's, what we're, <clears throat> that's why it's enjoyable to watch. How many times in the original series and in the next generation that they have a situation where, and you're looking at your watch because you know there's only like four minutes left in the episode, <laughs> yeah. and you're thinking, how the fuck are they going to solve this? <laughs> and then they turn to Geordie or they turn to Scotty or somebody else in the crew and say, what are we going to do? And the person, well, why don't you try this, try that, try that. Well, we reroute this, turn that on, turn on. And suddenly the world is safe. Yeah. That's what we want to see. That's very gratifying and enjoyable for the audience. Instead, you got a ship where the guy in charge has this shitty little chair <laughs> and <laughs> it's wearing a bad toupee. He's 
fighting with the guy who actually is the captain, captain of the ship yeah. for the control of the thing. And everything he does is a mistake that ends up with, with at least two people being killed. So we're not off to a good start. And no. then they follow up. I mean, first you got that 10 minute scene of the Enterprise taking off. Taking off, yeah. I, actually, <laughs> actually, no, I got to correct myself. First, you got 10 minutes of him just flying around the Enterprise. Oh, yeah, yeah. Then you have another big sequence where they actually take off, right? Uh, and then you get out, actually get out into space. You have those uh, few little things where uh, uh, they go into the uh, wormhole and then they get uh, the beam, that beam of light, the probe that appears on the, sh on the bridge. Right. And that takes away <clears throat> Ilya. And then you get this sort of torturous, long, drawn out thing of the ship going deeper and deeper, deeper into the cloud. And it's just boring as hell, you know? I mean, I enjoyed watching it. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed watching it. You know, I don't know, maybe my life is just that dull. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. And if I watch it tomorrow, I'm still going to enjoy it, but I can I, yeah. still sit there and nitpick it. <laughs> right. Well, maybe that's part of the reason we enjoy it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's fun fun to be uh, kind of a pest with these things. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people will be very angry to hear that we're not, you know, celebrating it as a masterpiece. Right. Now, now was this, because I, I would assume this was came about after the popularity of reruns and the conventions that you mentioned. Yeah. So to me, they're making this for the fans. They're not trying to get new people to watch it. So why not just keep the same campy series and just put that on the big screen? <laughs> well, I, I think, I, I mean, uh, they probably, after 10 years, they probably could try to avoid making things campy, per, you know, but... I mean, you could make it a little well, more. I say campy you know, now. It's campy in right. retrospect to me, but at the time, I'm sure it wasn't considered campy at all. But I think you're right. What they needed is to go back, and this is what Nicholas Meyer did, go back to that colorful, uh, uh, lusty uh, uh, melodrama. Yeah, because that, the, the, this, yeah, this movie, the Enterprise and all the costumes just felt sterile and clean, yes. where the you know the original like you said the colors all the different colored shirts oh, and the, the original the shot, sets yeah. were all colored lights and just you know clear colored plastic pieces i just that's what i loved the original dp for the i think it was first season of star trek the original series i think he was the guy that was in, he was a whole hollywood hand i think he might have been the guy that did some of the cinematography for gone with the wind but he would put colors everywhere he would use all sorts of gels to get colors all even oh, if yeah. it didn't make sense <clears> in the story right yeah you know that was the thing that they were kind of, they said, we're doing something that is almost like a play. It's almost like a stage play, all right? That you can't really go anywhere and find these locations. You can't go into space or go to an alien planet. And the things that we can afford don't really look very convincing. So do it in as stylish a way as possible so that even if it isn't completely convincing, people will still want to go along with you. They'll still enjoy yeah. it. Uh, and yeah, a lot of the sets to me just look like they took something that was being used over on a Western and just adding color to it. <laughs> in the original series. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you look at the first pilot, uh, I guess it was the second pilot, uh, where No Man Has Gone Before, the one with mm -hmm. Gary Lockwood and Sorry, Sally Kellerman, who just passed away recently. Oh, I thought they were on the, I thought they were on the first, the, the pilot, the man cave. Or is that what that was? 
the, no, the, the menagerie or the uh, or the cage. That was the, the first cage. One. Yeah. 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 Okay. That was the one with Jeffrey Hunter. Yeah. Uh, and the apparently NBC kind of liked it, but they wanted to see a second pilot, which at the time was unheard of almost. Yeah. I mean, you never say unheard of because there's always something. That's, <laughs> yeah. But it was very unusual for a network to ask for a second pilot. Second pilot, yeah. Uh, so that's when they did Where No Man Has Gone Before. And that's the one where they're using uniforms and props that never actually made it into the eventual series. Yeah. Uh, I guess they were using most of the props and costumes from the first pilot. Uh, also, DeForest Kelly isn't in the cast. It's, uh, I forget the guy's name, is an older actor playing. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, if you look at that, you look at the sets for that pilot. Uh, their uh, planet sets, their exterior planet sets are pretty elaborate with a lot of sort of colorful sky, clouds in the sky and things like that. And I guess what they realize is if you're going to have a planet every week, you can't go to all that trouble. Yeah. So they started, uh, started to use just simple like flat colors for the sky. One week it'll be a red, one week it'll be blue. And the ground itself was usually just rocky you know, terrain. And it never looked like the set went back more than you know 50 feet if right. that. Uh, <clears throat> but that was the beauty of star trek was that it was obviously not an elaborate production and still it was engrossing and moving and thrilling yeah because the story the story the stories were really good the characters were good you didn't care that you were on yeah <laughs> looking I, at a looking at a plain background <laughs> and, the, and the people that were making it were such skilled uh, artists and craftsmen that they could take simple things and make them look great yeah you know uh one of the things that's troubling about the motion picture in both versions although they've fixed it to a large extent uh with the new version is the problem of this background sound one of the things that was the most recognizable thing about the Enterprise in the TV series was that sound that you heard in the background all the yeah. time. Uh, that was a very smart move because they realized if you just have a bunch of people on a set or, uh, you know, sitting in chairs on a set, there's nothing that indicates that they're in space or that they're moving. Moving, you know, yeah. Especially with no there. windows, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. The monitor is in front, right? And the things that are along the sides that you're seeing the most are uh they look they could just be tvs right yeah so, so you need something that's that says we're out in space and we're moving uh, and that sound which might be this uh, i don't know if it's supposed to be like a submarine sound or some of the sound that you'd hear on a battleship but that was very much part of the feel of what the enterprise was when you heard that sound you knew where you were in the movie uh the original version doesn't really have any of that now I seem to remember, and I, I watched a little bit of it this afternoon because Paramount Plus has both movies, both versions of the movie. So I wanted to go back and check a couple of things, some special effects things. Uh, my recollection, though, uh, I didn't watch the whole original version. My recollection was you didn't hear anything on the bridge of the Enterprise until the end of the movie. And then you hear the sound of the Enterprise, the br famous bridge sound. Right. I'm not sure I'm right on that, but that was my impression. Anyway, it should have been through the whole movie because uh, one, one of the problems that they had with this, with the, with the bridge, was that they used rear projection uh, for the, all, the, all the monitors, all those colored light things that you see uh, on, the, on the bridge. They were all rear projected 
they had little projectors behind them. So you can imagine there's a lot of noise. Yeah. So they couldn't use their recorded sound. Most, you know, often they couldn't use recorded sound because they had all these, all this projector sound. So they had to loop a lot of that. And one way to hide the looping, one way to avoid that sort of hollow sound that you get uh, when, you, when you're looping is to layer some background tone over it, you know? So it, 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 it sort of joins everything together. It unifies the sound. They didn't do that. They have done it in the new version and that's a smart, a smart move. Uh, one little problem, uh, Paramount Plus is a streaming platform and they, they want people to, you know, average Joe to watch. And they're assuming that most people are not watching using headphones. Headphones, right. If you do watch using headphones, you'll notice that on both versions of Star Trek, the motion picture, mm -hmm. the sound seems to drop out. There's sort of irregularities in the, in the background sound and in the music. And at first I thought this was a problem with the remaster, but I went back and checked and it's true in the original version. So it can only be one thing. Paramount Plus is normalizing the audio for the movies that they put up. Right. They get tired of hearing people complain, it's too low, it's too loud. Too loud, yeah. So they push everything into a middle range of sound. They bring the highest sounds down, the loudest sounds down, and they bring the lowest sounds up. Now, this is the problem. If you're, on a, if you're making a movie on a wooden set and it's supposed to be on a metal spaceship and you hear people creaking around, <laughs> you know, uh, normally the, the guy who's mixing the audio would drop all that down or replace it with, with better, uh, you know, better sound, better background right. sound. If you suddenly raise all that up, which is what they do when they normalize, you raise all those sounds that are almost inaudible, you bring them all the way up, and people are going to hear all the shitty noises. That are, you know. <laughs> yeah. And every time somebody gets ready to speak, that sound will suddenly drop off. So just before somebody speaks, you'll suddenly hear the background tone, or the room tone drop off uh, because the uh, types of, um, of uh, uh, filters that they use, they have like an attack time. They're supposed to suddenly drop the sound down a certain, uh, uh, certain like this. A fraction of a second before the loud sound starts because yeah. you don't want to drop the loud sounds you allow the, the sounds that are at the proper level you don't want to drop them down so the uh, the sounds you can't hear are raised up mm -hmm. and then as they get closer to the part that you you can hear that, that drops down so you get this sudden dropping down of the, of the of the room tone all the time and sometimes of the music uh and that's something you can only really hear if you're wearing headphones, if you're just playing it in your living room. Yeah, or on your smartphone. To, or on your smartphone. <laughs> unless, unless some, and I guess that is probably now, that's probably where most people would be using headphones. Yeah. Most people would be sitting on a train or something watching on a smartphone and they'd have their, their uh, earbuds in. Right. Uh, but it was very noticeable in this and it was surprising to me because I said, I thought to myself, well, they've been talking so much about how, what a great job they did on remixing the audio. And yet it sounds like something worse than what I, what I would right. do. Uh, but that's not their fault. I wonder yeah. if the guys that actually did the audio mix are aware of what Paramount well, was. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they'll listen. they'll listen. We can tell them. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably not a big problem for movies that are being made now because they probably are normalizing the sound before those movies go out. Right, yeah. But the back in the old days, uh, you know, it wasn't as easy as just dropping a filter on your audio file. Uh, so the, it's the old movies that are gonna suffer probably. Yeah. Now, when I heard that this was coming out, they were doing this 
<clears throat> 40th anniversary, whatever director's cut. I assume they were going to touch up and re maybe redo some special effects. Mm -hmm. I didn't really notice anything. Did you watching kind of watching both part both episode uh, both versions? Did you notice anything? Nothing really jumped out, to be honest. I mean, it looks like they're the, the biggest changes have been changing the, uh, the, the colors. You know, right. They've gone for warmer colors, which is a good idea because some of those folks on the, in the original version, it looked like the only thing that wasn't available on the Enterprise was a tanning bed. You know, there's just some pretty pale, <laughs> yeah. pale, pasty looking people. Uh, and it, uh, so you have like bland colors uh for the set rather bland colors for the costumes and then you have these sort of pasty looking people uh it's not just not a, a visually attractive you know uh but uh there might be a few little tweaks to the special effects here and there but i i, I would have to spend my, i know i see a lot of videos on youtube comparing the original director's cut with the 4k version and I, I see certain changes like they changed that meteor or asteroid that's in the center of the wormhole they the explosion when that's it that that's been changed okay and it looks like they've put uh, some new uh stuff in v'ger uh, so, i don't know what the it's kind of hard to describe what v'ger is because i you know i, I still yeah. don't know <laughs> but parts of it have been that look like they've been replaced uh but other than that, no, I didn't see any major changes. I will admit, when I first sat down to watch it, it did seem to move a little more quickly. So maybe yeah. they found ways to uh, trim it down and make it a little sharper, you know, with the editing. Yeah. Now, when I was watching it, <clears throat> I'd sent you a screen capture of yes, uh, McCoy and Shatner standing in front of the window, right. and it looked like they looked like the lens was covered in Vaseline, <laughs> and I couldn't figure out what was going on with that scene. And it's worse in, in the 4K version. Right, yeah. I went back specifically to check that scene. What you're talking about is a scene where Spock has been called in. He's aboard the ship. He's been called in uh, to sit and talk with Kirk and McCoy. This is the scene where Kirk practically has to order Spock to, seat, uh, to take yeah. a seat. And I don't blame Mr. Spock for not sitting because those chairs are very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, uh, the situation is that you get a wide shot of that room, that conference room, or mm -hmm. whatever it's supposed to be, briefing room, whatever. And there are two or three giant windows with a star field yep. behind it. I assume when they did the movie originally, that was a blue screen, because I think back then they used blue screen. Blue screen, uh, yeah, probably, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but they superimposed that into... Uh, the star field into the shots after in, in post. And it looks to me what the problem was, uh, Shatner and DeForest Kelly are not in sharp focus. So they couldn't get a clean uh, mat line around them. Yeah, so they softened, <clears throat> softened the edges. Might have so so softened it or uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the process of trying to get rid of the... Um, the bleed because sometimes you have like uh, light will reflect on the, uh, the model or the person right and, yeah and you'll get a little blue you know in their face or in their head or in the hair in the hair yeah and then that disappears so maybe they thought well we'll put that out of focus so it'll be more solid and we won't get that bleed i don't know but anyway uh 
Shatner just looks a little out of focus. McCoy looks like he's just been smeared. Yeah. <laughs> he looks like he's still in the wormhole. Yeah. <laughs> that on Yeah, uh, I told you they look like a, look like a cardboard cutout. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's the I, I uh, in the new version it's even worse. Yeah, McCoy, but that's, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, the one I watched. It was just like I couldn't really figure out what's going on. Do you remember that story a couple of years back? It was a very famous thing. A uh, woman in I, somewhere in Italy or Spain, I think, uh, she decided she was going to restore this medieval painting of the Virgin Mary. And oh, she, had, and she just sort of <laughs> yeah, like a crayon drawing. You know? Yeah. Uh, that's what McCoy looks like, and it's it's just sort of you know it's weird. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if it's possible that they could have fixed that because I'm not sure if they're going with the original elements. I think they may just be going with the uh, film, the, the film itself, the finished yeah. film with everything in place. I'm not sure about that, but uh, you know uh, when they did the high definition version of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Uh, they put that we're going to put that out on a blu-ray i guess and they're also going to offer it on uh, streaming and they are yeah. uh, but they had to go back and they had to do all the com uh, compositing work over again because they had shot the uh models and the uh, for all the episodes on film but they had composited everything in video in st in standard definition yeah so that wouldn't hold up if you just took that those episodes when you put them up on uh, to hd uh, they, they would look terrible so they had to go back and redo the compositing of all the elements into in the backgrounds uh for every episode and they did that also the original series they actually replaced the original models with cgi oh yeah the first that the first time i'd seen it is that's what i watched was yeah. the and at the time i didn't know that they had done that i was like that's really good special effects for these. <laughs> 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 But I don't know if they had the ability to do that with this. I don't know if they had all the elements or if they had a budget that would allow them to go through all that stuff and to do all the compositing digitally. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it's pretty obvious that they haven't done it because you can still see like black lines around some of the ships. Some of the ships, point. yeah. Now I noticed in some, a lot of the scenes whenever you have a foreground actor, background actor, they do that split, oh, yes, split sure. lens, what's it called? A split diopter. Yeah. So I didn't know if maybe that scene was shot that way. And that's, you know what I'm yes. saying? Because they kind of had that same middle ground blurriness. It's very bad in this. It really yeah. is. <laughs> Robert Wise was a big fan of the split diopter because he was doing a lot of very widescreen movies. He did the uh, Sand Pebbles, the Steve McQueen movie sometime mm -hmm. in the 60s. Uh, and you watch that movie and it's, uh, the, the image just, uh, you feel like uh, like you're across the street from the, from the action. Yeah. You know? It's just everything's way back. But when he would go in for close-ups, he would always use that split diopter lens because you could have a sharp uh, close-up of a person in the foreground, and you could also have uh, somebody sharp in the background, but it couldn't be directly behind because the line was here, right? Everything behind the person who's in focus is going to be completely out of focus. Right. And everything all past the line is going to be on this side, on this side, is going to be in shop focus. So you get that very ugly look. Yeah. Uh, it works when you have a neutral background, but when you have detailed backgrounds of things uh, like uh, computer consoles and chairs and, and other people, the fact that it's so completely out of focus when right across on the other side of the screen, people who are standing that far away from the lens, the same distance, they're in shop focus.
So it, it looks ugly and it was yeah. a stupid thing to do. In this movie, the way it looks, the only the only area it kept making me think the only time you could really use this effectively in a movie is you have two people that are that you're describing that are in two different time frames, right? This person right. here is in the future and they're talking about this person in the past and then you set it up that way or right. so you know, use use it as a device. Yeah, story. some kind of love interest. You know, the, the guy's traveling to go see the woman and you're showing them both at the same time what they're doing. But well, two people on the same ship, like standing right behind each other, it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and it doesn't I guess give it, it doesn't give any kind of effect to the look, or and, you know, I'm not sitting there going, no, it "Wow, it just that's looks amazing. like a mistake." It yeah, like, and you're thinking this is a forty, fifty million dollar movie, and yeah. look at that, it's a whole lot of focus. <laughs> yeah. you know? uh, Robert Wise was worked as an editor with Austin Wells on Citizen Kane back when they did those movies. Uh, the idea of deep focus was the was considered the the right way to shoot a movie yeah you wanted to have everything in focus but it had to be like three feet from the camera and beyond uh you couldn't do the sort of massive close-ups i mean you could do them but you 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 couldn't do a massive close-up that also had other stuff in, fo in focus uh, in focus in the background yeah. so they came up with that idea of the split diopter lens so you could have those sort of massive close-ups in one part of the picture and the rest of the part of the, uh, of the picture would still be in focus. But it, it's by the time they did Star Trek, the motion picture, I assume that wasn't necessary. I assume that they must have had other ways of, of doing things because Star Trek II, which just came out a few years later, you know, they have shots, just scenes on the Enterprise and everybody's in focus. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I imagine, I just imagine maybe you do it with two strips of film. You know what I'm saying? Well, it looks almost Maybe looks like that. that. Yeah, but uh, <clears throat> it it is the result of having a lens that's actually two lenses. Two lenses, yeah. And uh, it's a very ugly look. Yeah, uh, that middle, just that that middle ground of just a blur, just it. That's what ruins it. <laughs> yeah, and and I don't know if uh, bringing it up to four K. I don't know if that necessarily makes it better. You know, no. it might, might make it worse in some respects. I mean, it's the sort of thing if you're looking at it in standard definition, you probably wouldn't even notice it that much. <clears throat> Are you looking at it on a big screen? Like I, I have a fairly large TV, and it just looks like an eyesore. I can't remember if I noticed it before. I mean, I guess maybe I didn't, because now just now it's a problem. So I'm assuming it wasn't as noticeable on the previous versions, or watching on a smaller screen, or. Well, another funny thing is Robert Wise claimed that he wanted to, uh, he wanted this movie to be like. Similar in style to 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah. Now, I, I think he was mistaken to take that approach. But if you're going to take that approach, you say to yourself, well, I saw 2001. It came out in 1968, right? And I consider Kubrick to be the, the master. And he didn't use a split diopter lens, right. as far as I could tell. If he did use it, he used it a lot better. <laughs> so why not be true to your word if you're going to imitate Kubrick, pay attention. He's not using those fucking lenses. Right, yeah. Uh, and, you know, with a movie that's this expensive, that has this much anticipation uh, from the audience, that people just thinking that this is going to be the best fucking thing that ever happened. <laughs> and they go to see the movie and they're thinking they couldn't even get the picture in focus. Yeah. You know, that's, that's not the reaction that you want. And the amazing thing is, right from the second movie, suddenly everything falls into place oh yeah it's just like the difference between night and day and i don't want to uh, praise wrath of khan too much because i don't want people to 
yeah, you know, sometimes when you overpraise something, there's people out there that, you know, that their reaction is to try to tear it down. If people don't like Wrath of Khan, you know, maybe there are reasons not to. It probably has its flaws too. Yeah. <laughs> but it was made for a fraction of the budget of the first film, and it actually is a, a thrilling film. It's uh, uh, exciting and suspenseful and entertaining and moving. Oh, yeah. And, and it is kind of campy and corny in some parts. You know, some of the things seem a little, uh, you know, uh, corny, I guess is the best well, word. That's yeah. what you want, though. You want a fun Star Trek. You don't want I, <clears throat> doom and gloom. <laughs> right. And let's be honest, there's plenty of corny <clears throat> shit in the motion picture as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, all that nonsense about uh, uh, the Deltons are supposed to be so sexually attractive that you know, as soon as somebody in Uhura says, oh, she's a Delton, and they all go, <laughs> 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 uh, that's well, it's Gene Roddenberry, of course. Yeah. The, the Mr. Sachs, the Hugh Hefner of uh, Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> the, great, the great bird of the universe has a different yeah. meaning. Uh, so she comes out, and the first thing she has to tell everybody, I guess, to avoid being jumped on, is that she's taken a vow of celibacy. That's all stupid shit. Yeah. And why is the woman that comes from a race of people that are supposedly so fucking sexy, why is she bald? Why is she bald anyway? Even forgetting about the fact that she's described as being this super sexual entity that all the Delton Four people are supposed to be. Why is she bald? I mean, just when you were thinking about the, this movie, why would they say, let's get a really beautiful woman and shave her head off? Shave her head, yeah. And she also, uh, the actress wanted to, uh, <laughs> she wanted in, her hair insured in case it didn't grow back. <laughs> no, I don't blame her. <laughs> yeah. But it just seems like, yeah, I mean, I can't figure that out. I don't know. Remember we were talking on the Rosemary's Baby episode about how, the importance of that scene where Rosemary comes back and she's had her hair done. Haircut, and yeah. Like uh, and we got into a discussion of how sometimes, uh, like in the aftermath of the Second World War, uh, the uh, French would uh, shame women that had supposedly collaborated with the Nazis by publicly shaving their heads. Uh, so usually for a woman... And I guess we need only ask uh, Will Smith this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 women's hair is a very touchy thing. And it, it has to mean something that you decide that you're going to take the person who you identify as being the sexy one uh, on this, irresistibly sexy, and she has a shaved head. I don't understand it, but I mean, it's, it's a nice look. Oh, yeah. And, but then I thought Will Smith's wife looked pretty good too. You know? yeah. So what do I know? I guess you never can tell about these things when when people's sexual tastes have become involved. You know, I mean, the other silly thing is uh, Vija, which is this com uh, comes from a world of of robots or technology, or, you know, uh, computers, uh, whatever. Uh, it snatches. Uh, uh, Ilya off the deck, right? Doesn't take any of the other people. Right. Picks, picks the sexy one. And then it returns her. And the first thing she has to do is take a shower. All right, yeah. <laughs> she's essentially a robot. Mm -hmm. And I know that they say, they say something about it. So she's taking a sonic shower. I don't know if that's in the dialogue or if that's just something that is included in the, in the liner notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then... 
when the shower ends, and they st I, I guess these are some of the suggestive scenes that somehow managed to get this up to a PG, which they wanted. Uh, before she steps out of the shower, uh, Kirk presses a button and she's suddenly wearing uh, something that you would probably, if you had a desire to buy something like that for your wife or your girlfriend, you'd have to go to one of these little shops in 42nd Street. Yeah. If there are any. So, <laughs> uh, and she's wearing like glass heel stiletto shoes. And uh, she's got a, a mini skirt that really even it really isn't even a skirt it looks like no. a shirt yeah and she stay remains standing uh, throughout the movie as far as i can remember so she never has like a, a sharon stone uh, incident right yeah uh, but it's still uh, silly choices you know i mean why don't we treat if, if the whole point of this movie is to uh show the humanity of people and to, and to show how all these uh, different types of folks, including aliens, how they're all, they share that, that humanity, right? That they're all uh, important people, they're significant, they, 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 their lives mean something. And yet the, the female character, you got to dress her up in a sort of silly costume. Yeah. And you have to have that business about sex. You know, in the first episode, the first pilot, uh, Nurse Chapel, Majel Barrett, she actually played the, uh, the part uh, of the number two on, on the ship, the second in command. Yeah. Um, and uh, the uh, preview audiences or the, the folks that did the sort of pre uh, screenings of these things, uh, the audience responds badly, responded badly to her. Um, but the, the gimmick was uh, some of the opening dialogue when that character's being introduced is similar to some of the dialogue you hear in movies like Rocket Ship XM and, and some of the other space adventure movies that came before it, which is they'll have a female character, but when they talk about her, they're talking about how cold she is, or do you think we have a chance with her? Yeah. And that really isn't, by 1979, you think they would know better, right? Let's have a female character who's a central character in the story and not immediately talk about whether or not she's good in bed. Yeah. Uh, but they just, I guess, with Mr. Roddenberry involved, they just couldn't resist. <laughs> uh, that seemed to be one of his great handicaps is that he had this pressing need to uh, explore sexuality right. uh, in, in, in his movies. Uh, the one feature film that he did after Star Trek was Pretty, Little, Pretty Girls All in a Row. I don't know if you ever heard of this one. I don't think so. Rock Hudson uh, plays a, a college uh, university professor who's sleeping with all the co-eds and may also be a serial killer. But the important thing is he's sleeping with all the co-eds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and when you look at things like uh, the two pilots that Roddenberry did for uh, TV, the two science fiction pilots that he did after Star Trek, I think one is called Planet Earth, if I'm not mistaken, or Genesis 2 or... I forget which, what the titles were for, for them. Anyway, it's the same sort of thing, right? So uh, I think in one of them, actually, the one with John Saxon, uh, it's all about a future society where the women are in control. So you can imagine all the stuff that goes on yeah. there, right? Uh, that's, that all looks terribly tedious. Gene Roddenberry did seem to buy into that sort of Hugh Hefner philosophy. Now, I, I don't dislike Hugh Hefner. I think he was an important figure for, in his time. But the philosophy... You know, the idea of saying, 
let's all be sexually liberated. Let's stop being uh, sort of uh, obsessed with a with a fear or guilt about sex. Right. But it's a natural thing. We should all, you know, be willing to admit that and let's be adult about this, right? Uh, but unfortunately, what it sort of translated into is uh, uh, I'm in favor of sexual liberation for women so that they will be liberated to have sex with me. Yeah. <laughs> so right around, that, right around that time in the late 60s and throughout the 70s, you see a lot of movies about middle-aged men, sometimes played by people like William Holden, uh, having affairs with like 17-year-old girls. Uh, this wouldn't fly today, of course. Oh, no, no. But there was just that notion that somehow this is such an uh, extraordinary thing for these middle-aged guys that suddenly... They've woken up in a world where they can actually have a 17-year-old girl, you know, find some hippie girl hitchhiking. And it's almost uh, assumed that she'll be. Didn't, uh, wasn't Lolita, wasn't that one of the big movies around that same time? Well, Lolita was about a guy that's actually gone for uh, like a 12-year-old. Oh, so yeah. Well. A little different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but that period in the 60s when there was a lot of talk about free love, it did seem to sort of uh, translate itself into... Uh, we get all we can get all any girl we want right? yeah uh and in star trek even in the original series you see i mean kirk, kirk almost became notorious for you know sleeping his way through the galaxy right uh every week he had a new uh, girl and and the girls uh, the women on the show were always dressed in what looked like very skimpy bikinis yeah uh there were some episodes where i gather they had some problems with the standards and practices people because of the, the amount of flesh that they were showing. Yeah, I remember, I remember the uh, the the episode about the android Andrea, where she basically just had a V, a v <laughs> right, covering yes. the breast, and I was like, I can't imagine. I don't know how they even made it on TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was. I mean, that is one of the advantages of science fiction is that you can just say, well, these are aliens. You yeah. Know? So uh, you know, uh, but. Uh, yeah, they, they were they went as far as they possibly could with that. And I don't they probably even I Dream of Genie didn't show a belly button, I guess, in the first couple of right, seasons. Yeah. Uh, but on Star Trek, it seemed like anything went. Uh, but that it, it, if you had a director who was willing to sort of stand up against that, then you probably wouldn't have that sort of leaking through into this movie. Right. Uh, and it isn't really a, 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 a tremendous problem, but it, in a sense, you could say the whole movie is kind of like a dirty joke, right? Vija wants to meet its creator. Uh, and when it, when he finally does, when it finally does, it wants to fuck. Right? Yeah. And Decker, who seems like this horny guy is, uh, <laughs> I, I want this more than anything. Yeah. <laughs> And, they, and of course, one of the problems with Star Trek, and it's, it was always true, and it always it's true even to, the, to, to this day, is when, they're, when the characters are talking about something where the technology or the science hasn't really been nailed down, they sort of just make statements, right? I mean, he doesn't even know what it means. What it means, yeah. What does that mean? He didn't even know that what any of this was before they got there. Right. I mean, the, the, the woman that he knew has been killed and replaced by this technology, by this creature. And now he's saying he, he wants to join with it without even knowing what, what that means exactly. Yeah. And of course they have that very silly thing where he's having such a good time, his hair is flying up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she doesn't have any hair to fly. So uh, he's the only one that, 
his hair is literally standing on end. And when, when I see that, I think to myself, didn't anybody say, you know, people are going to take this the wrong way, Robert, yeah. you know, this is going to look silly. The guy is essentially having sex and his hair is, <laughs> looks like something out of a, like a Three Stooges. Or yeah. short, you, know? Uh, you know, those, those are the, those are the things that kind of, I guess it's to, another example of a sort of runaway production. Right. You know, nobody was in charge really. And it's nice that they've, tried to impose some sort of order on on this film now uh, and and to be honest with you in watching uh the original little bits of the original version this afternoon i can see that the original version w was not really that awful you know right I mean, yeah <laughs> it, 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 it was it had some semblance of a movie and a story but uh, expectations were so high that you know, couldn't help but disappoint, especially when we had just had Star Wars a few years earlier. Yeah. And I know a lot of people will say, well, Star Wars really wasn't hard science fiction. So that shouldn't be used as a, a template for this film. But I would say Star Trek was not hard science fiction either. Star Trek was space adventure. Yeah. Uh, you know, the original proposal that Roddenberry made to the networks was its wagon train to the stars. Now, I know he was he intended to be a little more ambitious with the themes that he was going to deal with on the show. But still, the idea was you have to compensate for those moments where you have Captain Kirk giving a speech. You have to compensate for that by having a scene where he's kicking ass once in a yeah. while. Right. And he did plenty. I guess every episode had him uh, fighting with people. Right. Yep. Uh, or, his, or, or his stunt double. <laughs> well, I think Shatner actually. Uh, handled some of that mm. stuff himself yeah. uh, and he wasn't so bad at it. He, you know, I, I guess he was still in decent shape at that time. Uh, but uh, that, that's the, that's the price you have to pay. If you're going to speechify one moment, yeah. you have to give people something colorful and exciting to watch the next moment, you know, uh, that's uh, the problem with this movie is that there wasn't, was no opportunity for action. What could right. they do? What could you do? I was going to say the uh, having like no fun antagonist is what hurt this movie. We yes. need we needed like a con or a Harry Mud. <laughs> I, yeah, you don't. I mean, you don't really have an antagonist at all. No, I like the idea of the Voyager spacecraft because it kind of like it's connecting the past with the future without doing a time travel movie. Right. But you know, but still, just the whole V'ger thing and. Well, it's it, connected. It, it almost, it, yeah. It reminded me of they repeated that they repeated this again in the voyage home with the with the whales. Yeah, you know, something shows up to Earth. It's going to destroy us unless it can talk to. It, and we right. don't know who that's we don't right. know, we don't yes. know who it wants. It's just some signal. We got to figure it out. And that's like it was almost the same exact thing. So with the voyage <laughs> home, they were almost saying you could take that idea and do it right. Yeah, you make it work. Show how that yeah. could be an enjoyable story. Make it but, fun. <laughs> but the, the plot of this, and this was something they knew even at the time. The plot of this was basically the plot of the Changeling episode. Yeah. Where Kirk has that little floating robot that he has to deal with that gets beamed aboard and has the same business about it's looking for its starting point or its creator or something. And it's going to neutral, it's going to neutralize or sterilize everything it finds. And they eventually realize that it was a space probe that sent out from Earth that was supposed to sterilize soil samples, not sterilize, you know, living, yeah. living beings. Uh, so they basically took the, the one idea in the movie 
is taken from one of the episodes of the TV show. Now, I guess you could say, well, they did that with Wrath of Khan as well. They took an idea from the movie, yeah. from the TV show, and they brought it into the movie. But they they did it in an exciting way. Yeah. I, uh, I have, I don't know if I have it here. I have the, uh, the advertisement that was run in Variety. Uh, the, the studios used to run in daily Variety and weekly Variety. They used to run these expensive... Uh, fold out uh, color uh, advertisements for the upcoming movies. Mm -hmm. And the Wrath of Khan is just this beautiful thing with all explosions and spaceships and people fighting. And, <laughs> and you could see that what they were saying is this one has got to be better than the yeah. last one. Please forget that one. Yeah. Uh, and it sure was. I mean, uh, whatever, whatever quibbles people might have, it was just more fun to watch. Oh, yeah, I love it. It's one of my, one of my favorites. Yeah, it's a very entertaining film. And uh, yes, Jerry Goldsmith did a terrific job on the music, but I love the music for Wrath of Khan as well. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I mean, I'm not a musician, so I can't speak about the technical aspects of it, but it's it's a, it's just a thrilling, soaring kind of a piece of music just makes you, uh, you, you can't help but get caught up in the movie when you hear that music. Yeah. So, uh, and yes, that's true. And with the, end, with the ending of this one, it was just like, okay, we find out who the creator was. Decker's going to make love to it and we're going to leave. And it was like, okay, well, what'd you get out of it? Yeah, <laughs> nothing. Really there was no, yeah, there was no, yeah, I guess maybe Kirk learned a lesson, but. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, even the business with Spock, you could say that perhaps the one real instance of character development or significant character change is yeah. what happens to Spock. He starts off, uh, he wants to, uh, wants to achieve whatever level he's shooting for and call an R, uh, some sort of discipline. Uh, and before he gets the medal that makes him a, whatever, <laughs> yeah. best in show or whatever. Uh, he, he says, you know, no, I can't, I can't take that because I, I got some, I got some unresolved things. Uh, yeah. Some of the dialogue suggests, or some of the subtitles suggest that um, he's sensing Teacher? Yeah, I kept thinking he's, he's got the force in this one. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's sensing, you know, thousands so that, of voices just cried out. Right. <laughs> that's what I kept waiting for him to say, you know. So that's kind of a nice touch. That shows some sign that the people that were writing this had some skill, right? They're sort of putting that out there that the, he, he has to be involved in this because yeah. he's getting the signals that something's wrong and it causes him to leave the thing that he wants to do, the life he wants to, leave, to live, he's leaving that to go and address this other bigger problem because he sensed that this entity might have uh, feelings similar to the feelings that he has. Yeah. So he goes and he uh, mind melds eventually with it. And he uh, comes away when he's sitting in the sick bay or laying in the sick bay later. I think that's the first time we ever see mr spock's feet that i can remember uh, <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah. uh, and he's wearing a very cute little hoodie uh, i don't know why the hoodies in sick bay would have orange fluorescent orange lining <laughs> but anyway it's nice to see a little color in the scene but uh, then he basically tells you what he what what he's what his situation is and we get some idea of what sort of path he's on what sort of progress he's making and then eventually on the bridge at one point he starts to cry because yeah. he's 
feeling, he, he recognizes Fiji's plight, you know, he's a sympathetic uh, spirit. Uh, and then at the end of the movie, uh, when Scotty offers to drive him back to Vulcan, <laughs> Uh, he says, no, I'm all done there. Yeah. That won't be necessary. So there you can see there's a progress, right? They're, they, they gave us something, you know, with that character. Yeah. But Kirk, if he Nothing. did learn anything, yeah. really not much. <laughs> Don't be such a dick, right? Yeah. That's, that's about the only lesson that he really got. Uh, Decker, I guess, uh, there's no character there to speak of, right? Yep. So there's no opportunity really to learn anything. Uh, I guess he liked this girl so much that even when she had been replaced with a, a Android replica, he still wanted to still want, yeah. go to bed with her, so so to speak. Uh, and the other characters, not uh, pretty much non-existent. Right, you could check you could, off Zulu, Sulu. I mean, Sky. Check off <laughs> the only one who has a worse to pay than, Mr. Yeah. than Captain Kirk. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, they all, they're all, a lot of their shot, a lot of their scenes, uh, have come and gone in the various versions because right. they're really not necessary to the plot. I also dislike this sort of, um, overly moist, sentimental <laughs> attitude that everybody on the enterprise has in this one. Yeah. And I, I like that they got away from that in the second one, right from the second one. It's, this is a military operation. People don't behave that way. Yeah. And somebody comes on the bridge, no matter how much you like them, you don't shout their name and throw your arms around. Them. <laughs> uh, that's that's something. Even like, for instance, when Chekhov has this what appears to be a fairly minor injury. Injury it burned his arm, right. his hand. Yeah. Nurse Chapel is called to the bridge, and Uhura jumps up uh, just to give uh, Michelle Nichols a couple of lines. Of, oh, he's over there. Yeah. Hey, Cameron, over there. As if she would see the guy that's laying on the floor. Right? Screaming, yeah. As soon as she points Chekhov out to her, uh, and, uh, nurse slash Dr. Chapel, she puts this face on him. <laughs> I don't know if she just doesn't like Chekhov, or she yeah. was so appalled by the snorkel injury. Yeah. Let's be honest. If that's your doctor's reaction, get another doctor. Get another, yeah. If you show your doctor your burn and he goes, ah, <laughs> you know, that's not a guy that you want right. or a gal you want. Uh, but they they seem to feel that they every opportunity to juice up the role for these poor supporting people that are going to be a major part of the story. Uh, that was something they, they couldn't, uh, you know, not do. They had to jump in every time. Let's, and the other thing that bothers me is this was the movie where they tried to pay back all the fans by giving them little roles in the film. Yeah. And boy, can you tell, <laughs> you know, the, the, I, I assume that woman who Kirk has a little dialogue with when they're waiting for Dr. McCoy to beam up, I assume from her delivery that she was not a professional right. actress. Uh, and, and that hurts these types of movies. We, that sort of dialogue should be thrown off. It shouldn't be, you know, uh, go in for a close up. This is a, that's <laughs> trivial stuff. You should be just, you know, sort of seeing that out of the corner of her eye. We should yeah. be, uh, you know, and, and the delivery of all bad actors or non-actors always sounds the same it's like sort of universal act uh, universal language of bad acting <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh and he, and that uh, uh, ridiculous scene in the big the giant conference room 
where they have all these people and they wisely put all the folks that wear the Halloween masks <laughs> way in the back. back yeah. Uh, but it's like, you know, they, they're, they're saying, uh, they say, oh, we got this horrible thing and let's take a look on the big screen. And everybody's going, oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, that's not, you know, that's not the way you expect professional people uh, in a military uh, operation to be behaving. Right. And you also, the folks that, including that guy who was supposed to be in the original TV series, uh, who got downgraded to that deep scene, <laughs> uh, we see him on the monitor, you know, say, it's over 6,000, whatever long, you know, it's, it goes on forever. It's incredible. What power? Not the way professional people in no. that sort of situation behave, you know? I mean, listen sometime, they have them on YouTube, listen to the communications between Mission Control and Apollo 13. Right. These guys are on, uh, are almost dead. <laughs> right? They're that close to being dead. Lost in the vastness of space. And they sound cool as a cucumber. Oh, yeah. and they sound professional as can be. That's what you would expect from astronauts. Yeah. Right? These people are highly trained. They're not going to wet their panties just because somebody says there's something out there that's killing people. That's what they're there for, right? That's yeah. why they're being called into <clears throat> service. So I don't, I don't care for that. You know, and I don't, I suppose there's nothing that could really be done in editing the, the latest version to fix that, you know. Probably but, not. <clears throat> but uh, if you were doing a movie that really was a full-blooded melodrama where everybody was, you know, chewing the scenery, then that wouldn't matter so much. You know, it wouldn't stand yeah. out so much. But when... Uh, Shatner, who we usually can rely on for giving a sort of overacting, mm, yeah. <laughs> when he is like a stick doing nothing, you know, and the and the most active part of him is the costume changes and the toupee moving around, uh, then all of those folks that are delivering the dialogue, the little dialogue that they have, delivering yeah. it poorly, that really stands out, you know, and it's. You know, it doesn't, yeah, they, doesn't they probably should have just offered those people walk on rolls, <clears throat> walk yeah. through the scene, and that's it. No, right. <laughs> no dialogue. Right. Walk through the corridor. That's pl pl <clears throat> plenty of shots like that. You could you could stick people in there. Yeah. Uh, but apparently they had some idea that uh, this was necessary when you do a, a a big movie version of Star Trek that you have to show all the people that you normally didn't see on the TV series. Yeah. But I never felt that the except maybe in the third season when they really cut the budget of the show i never got the impression that the enterprise was empty they no. had enough e extras moving around so that it felt like it was fully populated uh i i guess you could say that uh one of the smart things they did with the subsequent films is they got rid of all those people right, right yeah the enterprise by the time they do star trek three the enterprise is just a skeleton crew right, right. So it makes you wonder why they have all those people in the first place. Right? Yeah, I guess in doing? this, I guess they didn't, I guess they only built the sets for the, um, for the main deck of the Enterprise and then that little conference room. I didn't see, there was no turbo lift <laughs> scenes. There was yeah. no walking out the hallway scenes or anything like that. 
Well, I think there's one brief scene where Kirk is walking down the uh, corridor and there's this guy walking his little electronic doggy. Oh yeah, when well yeah, when he when he first yeah, when he first shows up. Right. When he goes down to get Decker from the right. I guess the engine room. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you got the engine room uh with all sorts of uh, colored lights flashing which is all but just stuff you forget about i guess <laughs> did, yeah did those, weren't, <laughs> yeah. those weren't consequential and the corridor scene was just another instance of them trying to hammer home the idea that kirk doesn't know what he's doing yeah because he has to ask for directions there, yeah he doesn't know where he's going yeah yeah that's not uh, i don't think that that's what people really will come in to see that movie for i think the audience would have been perfectly happy if you just started with them all in place all doing the job that because this is the way we're seeing them you know you yeah. leave them you leave the movie you go home and you turn on star trek there they yeah. all are they, yeah they i don't do i don't understand why this just didn't pick up right after that last episode yeah. <laughs> they're just well, gone on to their next adventure from that episode they might have they they might have said that oh we have to they have to explain why the ship is different and why the costumes are different and things like that that there's been a passage of time but that it doesn't really explain any of that right? no. things are different just because it's a movie and they just they have an, a, a director that wanted things to be different yeah. but but it's very hard to believe that the federation uh, suddenly decided that everybody has to uh, have different uniforms, uniforms and, yeah. and it's very hard to believe that the klingons within the space of four or five years suddenly sprouted Developed, all these yeah. armadillo uh, <clears throat> things on their heads yeah so, so nothing nothing changed for three years and then within the span of four years everything changed everything changed. Right? <laughs> yeah it, it's not necessary the, the audience understands the audience knows that they're seeing a movie representation new version of this story right and as long as you have the original characters they're going to be fine with it as long as it's good yeah. And the proof of that is when they did Star Trek II, Two, it was yeah. a great success. And when they did Star Trek IV, it was the biggest hit uh, that, that they've had. I think it's still one of the top grossing uh, films. It certainly was the top grossing of the original series of films. Um, so, yeah, you don't need that. That's, that's like people who, get, you know, they say, uh, we killed Godzilla in the last movie. <laughs> How are we going to explain bringing it? Nobody gives a fuck. Yeah. You know, nobody's paying that close of attention to those details. We just want to see these things on the screen, things that we like. And we're hoping that you have something you're going to be doing with these characters that's going to justify our confidence when <laughs> yeah. we buy a ticket, right? You know, you're, you're sort of saying, we came up with an idea. We have a new adventure we want to tell. And in this case, they didn't really. No. Nope. Which is sad because with $50 million, you probably, if you had a story, <coughs> it really could have been something fantastic. But I think that the big problem is uh, Robert Wise was trying to make a different type of film. Different, yeah. This he was trying to make 2001. Right? <laughs> star Trek is closer to Flash Gordon, right? Or Forbidden Planet. Forbidden Planet is probably the perfect template for a Star Trek movie because it basically is Star Trek. I don't know if Gene Roddenberry has ever addressed this and uh, before he died, but yeah, you know, are you familiar with Forbidden Planet? Yeah. Forbidden Planet is essentially Star Trek. All the characters are essentially the same. The funny thing is when uh, Cine Fantastique, which was the big magazine for uh, science fiction, fantasy, and horror films back during that time in the 70s, they were planning to do a big double issue uh, exploration of the making of Star Trek, the motion picture. Uh, apparently the picture was delayed so many times that, uh, and the person who was doing the, uh, this in-depth article had so, so much difficulty in trying to get uh, details about the story, you know, how, how the film was made, that ended up 
never being published in the magazine, but it actually has now been published as a book. So people can find that. I'll, I'll try to include the details in the um, in our notes uh, for this uh, for this episode. But that's uh, a whole book that was written about what went wrong while they were making the movie, speaking with the actors and the director and all the folks that were involved. There's another book that was written by Gene Roddenberry. That I think it's available on the uh, on Amazon. All copies of it are available on Amazon. I don't think it's on the Internet Archive. archive. But that's a, a writer for Starlog working with Gene Roddenberry to tell his version of events. I have a feeling that probably isn't the most reliable version. Right. But anyway, by coincidence, when Cine Fantastique did their special double issue, all about the making of Forbidden Planet, which is, is a wonderful movie from the 50s. And just uh, like Leslie, Leslie Nielsen's in there, right? Leslie Nielsen. That, yes. Okay, okay. That, that was pre, pre, pre comedy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, uh, in the same issue, they actually do end up having an article, a much briefer article about the making of Star Trek The Motion Picture. And when they eventually reviewed the film, one of their later issues, which I think I might have here, uh, the review ended up in, in the issue that they devoted to the black hole. <laughs> so a special double issue all about the making of the special effects of the black hole, which came out the same year. as same year, yeah. And stunk almost as bad. Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember that was a very depressing time for me. I don't think, I don't think, I don't think anybody talks about that movie anymore. <laughs> well, I, I, it's very hard to say anything nice about it other, <laughs> yeah. uh, other than the visuals. Yeah, Spe special effects, the visuals, very nice. Uh, but uh, coincidentally, in the same issue that they did there, um, they used to force us to watch at elementary school. I remember that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Black Hole. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, that's another movie that had uh, this uh, misunderstanding uh, about two thousand one. Yeah. Trying to mix Star Wars type space adventure with a little bit of Star Trek and uh, an ending that's 2001. It doesn't work. Right. But just by coincidence, they ended up reviewing Star Trek the motion picture in their black hole issue. Uh, and the headline on the review uh, this is by Kay Anderson saying things are deep, mystical, and profound does not make them so. And the sad truth <laughs> is the Emperor's stock naked. And I think Colin Ellison did a review of the film for uh, for Starlog, or he might have done it for this, or he may have done it in one of his interviews with one of the other publications. And he uh, he's the guy that wrote um, City on the Edge of Forever, yeah, uh, which he more or less disowned because he said they had changed it so much. He was a bit of a dick, Colin Ellison. <laughs> he died a few years ago. There's a lot of things that you could say about him that aren't uh, very nice. Yeah, he I remember he he had his own uh, back whenever Sci-Fi Channel first launched. He had his own talk show on there. I remember, really I remember watching it all the time. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Well, he was a very uh, talented and intelligent guy, and for a while, I was a great hero of his. Uh, I was uh, he was a great hero of mine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I remember going to another. Um, convention phil suling's comic book conventions back around the same time they had star trek conventions they yeah. started to have comic book conventions and i remember signing on as a security uh at that convention just so that i would have an opportunity to see holland nelson because he was right. going to be speaking there and i got an autographed copy of uh, a book that he had written 
and I had a, a so, so strange interaction with him. Uh, I was <laughs> waiting online and uh, I gave him, you know, you, go, you, go, you get to the front of the line, you hand the person the book that they're supposed to sign and they sign him. He looks up at me and he says, smile for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess it was about a month or so later, I was coming back from um, a meeting at the School of Visual Arts. Uh, they were uh, interviewing uh, students, people that were applying. And I had, had my interview and I got the impression that they were going to accept me. So afterwards, I was walking along Park Avenue and I was going to walk all the way up to 59th Street from 23rd Street where the School of Visual Arts was. As I'm passing by this, what might have been a hotel, and Harlan Ellison comes out of the building and he passes right by me. And then as he's passing, he looks at me like this. Now, I don't know if he recognized me from the line. <laughs> or more likely, he was just assuming that I was one of those fanboys that was probably going to say something to him. So, yeah. So he's waiting to hear what sort of idiotic statement I was going to make. Anyway, I, I disappointed him. I didn't say anything. Right. <laughs> I, I, I think if I had said something, I would have commented on the uh, fluorescent purple bowling jacket that he was wearing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because he was a rather flamboyant dresser. For, yeah. You know. uh, anyway, uh, he, he not really a nice person, you know, and he got a lot of black marks against him as far right. as uh, I can see from what I've read about him. Uh, but he's dead now. So <laughs> anyway, <laughs> he wrote, wrote a review of uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture. And even though he had some bad blood between him and Roddenberry and, you know, uh, anger about how he, he felt the script had been treated, he reviewed the film fairly, you know, and uh, one of the things he pointed out was that all the young folks coming out of the theater after seeing mo uh, the motion picture, they were all saying, yeah, it was pretty good, you know, but it was nothing like the sort of reaction they had when they're coming out of Star Wars, you know, that, that was sort of the sh surest way to see that that, that franchise in, in that early stage was in real trouble. Yeah. So they really needed somebody to come along, you know, to put a little life into this thing and to make it work. And also the cast was saying similar things. The cast was, was concerned about the script, saying they weren't seeing the characters there, you know, and they were hoping that that would be fixed. And so a lot of, uh, you know, very troubling signs even before yeah. the film was released. But I guess it did just well enough so that they were willing to go ahead and do a, a sequel. But apparently uh, Paramount sought out uh, Harv Bennett, TV producer, and their main concern was, can you make it better and can you make it cheaper? And he said he could, and that's how he got the job. And he's kind of an unsung hero, I think. Uh, I used to have a copy of the Star Trek II script that he contributed to. He might have written the original script, and then it was passed along to other people to... I think uh, uh, the uh, director contributed to the to the script as well, and they came up with different ideas. Like the Genesis project was was a, an idea that somebody else might have even been the special effects people that came up with that. But um, that that was the that was the sink or swim moment, more so than the first film. The, the first film proved that there was an audience because people did turn out for the movie. But this, the second film had to prove that it could actually be a good movie, an entertaining movie. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy that people are enjoying this, this new version of the original film. 
but I, I don't know if it really is that big of an improvement, you know. No. It's still essentially the same movie, and it still has many of the same flaws that the original film had. Uh, so. Yeah, I definitely don't. <clears throat> I don't uh, like publicly defend this movie. <laughs> I just kind of enjoy it in private. <laughs> it's a guilty it's not, pleasure. Yeah, and I, and I'm not like a I'm not like a like I said because I never watched the show girl and everything, so I'm not like a. I mean, I enjoy I enjoy the show, I enjoy the movies, but uh, so I'm not. But I'm not like a purist. <laughs> you know right. what I'm saying? But I would say that. Uh, J.J. Abrams got it right when he done his first. That's what this should have been. The fun, yeah. the fun of the, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm not the biggest fan of J.J. Abrams. Yeah, I, I well, I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying that's a, I'm not saying that's like the perfect. I'm just saying that's what that's what this movie should he, have been. He had an understanding of how to make a really entertaining, you know, blockbuster movie. Yeah, and uh, the problem, I guess, with Robert Wise is he's thinking I'm I want to do something artistic and profound. But he's working with material that is space opera. It's, yeah. it's pulp material, and, and you can't do both. You can't. You know the the requirements of a of a, an action adventure story are different from the requirements of something like two thousand one. With two thousand one, Stanley Kubrick was intentionally trying to frustrate audience expectations. He wanted to do something that hadn't been seen before, and he was making a movie which really. It's just sort of like an, something that you're supposed to experience. It's supposed to wash over you. There, there, there are no human characters that are very clearly defined in 2001. And that's intentional. It's not like he didn't know how to create yeah. interesting characters on the screen. He wanted the human characters to be bland and neutral uh, because the, the story, the film, wasn't about the soap opera details of these particular individuals. It was a, this sort of larger story about the creation of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a species, right? a whole new race of beings, the, whatever the star child is supposed to be yeah. at the end, the next step for human beings. Uh, so to be worrying about their sexual interests and things like that, that would have been wrong. But in a movie like this, relationships between the characters and some real drama or conflict, uh, heroism, you know, that's what was yeah. missing. There's no real heroism in this. I mean, where's the self-sacrifice? Is Decker's self-sacrifice supposed to be what's supposed to give us a lump in our throats? We're supposed to <laughs> I think, I mean, he's not, a, he's not a character. He's not enough of a character throughout the rest of the movie right. where you care at the end. You're just like, ah, right. whatever. <laughs> and I have to admit, it, if I was advising that, guy i would see you being a f terrible fool <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're a young man you're already a captain of a starship you have a long life a career great accomplishments ahead of you and you're gonna throw that all away just so that you can become sparkly stuff yeah. and you don't even know what happens afterwards right where are you gonna go afterwards you're gonna lose your life just to, to put on a light show you know it does ridiculous it's yeah. stupid there's no way to get moved or emotionally involved in that you know but uh, well, that's what that's what we were stuck with, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, just wanted to see. I wish somebody had shaved William Shatner's arms. <laughs> I, I don't mean this this part. I mean this part. Yeah. He's got like half a pound of hair. Yeah. Know, his arms. <laughs> that doesn't look very good. Spock's ears. Apparently, there's a story there. 
apparently when they started shooting, they left the night watchman in charge of turning off the oven. Uh, <laughs> and I guess he forgot. So the next day, uh, all of Spock's ears that they were preparing, they were making foam rubber ears and they have yeah. to be, they have to be baked in, a, in a, an oven. Uh, they didn't have any. So they actually used remnants of the Spock ears from the original series that somebody had saved. But if you look very carefully, you can see his ears changing. Right, yeah. During the course of the movie. And I don't, uh, I have a, they don't look to me like the old ears. There's something wrong with them. I don't know what it is. But anyway, it's, it's something uh, to be looked at. When you see the, the movie in 4K, you see a lot of the sort of mascara and stuff that they put around his eyes, which, you know, doesn't look that great. Um, the back of the, the headrests on there, on the captain's chair and on the other chairs on the bridge have what appear to be bolts in them. I don't know why that would be. Yeah, well, I noticed too that I guess <clears throat> the headrest is motorized, raises up and down. Well, that's cool, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But why Why would they still be using yeah, I don't know. bolts? You know, that seems silly. Uh, we talked about the split diopter shots. Uh, oh, yes. the All the spacesuits, all the scenes of people in spacesuits are shot in a very odd way. Whenever we see full figure, they appear to be um, models, yeah. mini miniature people in spacesuits. And when we see Kirk and Spock go out, uh, of the ship uh, everything is done in close-up and it looks to me like they simply superimposed or matted their the actor's faces into the helmet uh, because i can't understand why you would have that shot locked down right, why would you yeah. have a lockdown shot of the helmets if <clears throat> you know if the, if the person was really wearing them there is one shot where clearly the actors are wearing them but I have a feeling they only had like this much of the costume. Yeah. Because they shoot when they when he finally catches them, there's uh, appears to be one person. It's probably not William Shatner in a spacesuit, and he grabs a, a a Spock dummy, and then they cut to a close up of the two of their their faces in the helmets, and there they actually appear to be in the helmets. But all the other shots they appear to be projected. I was gonna say maybe they were having the same problem that they had on the set of Alien, where they're breath would fog up the well, I would, that's why i they... would have thought that would add it would have added yeah. <laughs> uh, to give it a little believability yeah but the uh uh the rear projection which might that might it, it might be another example of rear projection that might be a a, a big helmet that they projected the images of the faces onto the back on the screen. And the reason I, th I think that might be the case is because you see some of those shots when uh, uh, Kirk and Scotty are joyriding around the outside of the Enterprise in that little pod. And sometimes as the ship is passing, you can see they're, they're in, in the windows, they're standing in the, in, in the window, the big window at the front of the pod. And as, they, as it moves, they look flat. You know, and that is what you get when you project the image inside the model you project it onto a screen as the model is well, actually it's the camera that's moving but uh, when the camera moves past the model uh, the perspective on the figures doesn't change because they're being projected on a flat surface so there's a couple of instances that you can also tell from the contrast the projected image is always different darkness and brightness uh, values than you would get in the rest of the picture because yeah. it's something that was shot 
earlier time. So it looks to me they did the same thing with the spacesuits. Why, I don't know. Is it, is it possible that that would have added so much to the budget to actually shoot them in the, in the spacesuits outside? And, you know, I guess they have to be in harnesses or something, hang them from the floor. Maybe the, maybe they maybe the actors, yeah, maybe the actors didn't want to put a full suit on. Well, maybe not. <laughs> there is Kirk footage of him uh, getting into a spacesuit, I believe. I think that was some of the footage that they ended up using on the TV uh, broadcast. Uh, unfortunately, when they have this, uh, in, in, the, in this version, Kirk just sort of appears outside the Enterprise. Yeah. And in the TV version, they have a scene of the Enterprise, the, the, the um, uh, saucer of the Enterprise, there's a little door that opens, opens and up, yeah. fly, flying out. Unfortunately, they put him in a, a different spacesuit, <laughs> so it doesn't match the other stuff later when he finally catches Spock. I guess because they decided not to use that footage, it wasn't supposed to be used, so it didn't matter that he was wearing a different uniform. Also, when he comes out of the Enterprise, unlike Spock, he's not wearing a thruster pack. Right. I'm trying to, trying to figure out what did he expect to be able to do without a thruster pack? How is he going to get all that distance into Eger? without any sort of propulsion. And he's just going to wait outside the Enterprise and hope okay. that Mr. Spock, <laughs> Spock comes, comes by, yeah. <laughs> V'ger spits him out, and I'll be here to catch him. You know, doesn't make sense, really. You know, you need some sort of propulsion, but why would Kirk be leaving the ship anyway? You know, that's not the way Kirk does business. Right? That's you have, another you have all those... Uh... Military guys that could have easily suited up and went out there. Right. Yeah. Anybody, <laughs> anybody would do. Right. Uh, but I think part of the problem is Robert Wise was not a fan of the transporter. Transporter was basically a storytelling device. Yeah. They didn't want to have to bother with landing ships every episode of the TV series. So they came up with the t- a transporter. Transportation technology is ridiculous. It's never going to yeah. <laughs> uh, And Dr. McCoy is right. Basically, the people who step into that beam are being destroyed destroyed and rebuilt yeah right yeah and they never really explain exactly how it works they didn't really get around to doing that until the next generation and the theory or the concept that they came up with is completely different from what was supposedly happening in the original series the original series you step on that platform and your molecules are taken apart and you're beamed down to the planet and reassembled what they never explained is why is it necessary to stand on the platform on the ship but anybody can transport up or down on the planet. Yeah, the yeah. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. That doesn't really make sense. But uh, I think he wasn't crazy about the idea of the transporter because he was making a $50 million movie. And these little storytelling tricks, these little uh, expediencies that you would use in a, in a TV series to save money and save time weren't really necessary in a movie, right? You could have a lot of stuff and it gives you something to do. Let's get people in space suits and send them out into space right. and, and so forth. Uh, but uh, it, it really limits you because in the TV series, Kirk could be on the bridge one minute and be right in the heart of the action in the next minute. And here, everything's so laborious. Yeah. <laughs> it take, takes you know a, a quarter of the movie to just get from where they start to the heart of the of Viger. And even when they get there, there's nothing there really. You know, a lot a lot of light, blue light, and you know, wavy things. You know, I don't even know what it's supposed to be. I don't know. Uh, I know the uh, the opening uh, to me looked like a rectum, but I don't know what well, they were going yes, for there. <laughs> uh, that that's you know, I mean, and I keep referring it to to it as the orifice. <laughs> yeah, you know? it's, got, 
he's going to probe the orifice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is just, yeah, what can you say, right? God bless them. They yes. were trying. I they guess. tried. Yeah. They tried. <laughs> at, least they, at least they corrected course later on. So. Yes. And they made considerable use of the transporters in later movies. But I just think he wasn't, he was a little embarrassed by the trans, Robert Wise. He didn't think that they should be, that shouldn't be part of the story. That was, yeah. and the only time he really uses it, other than to bring the characters onto the ship, <clears throat> is to kill. The, the only time it's really <clears throat> important in the story is when it kills two crew members. Two, yeah. So that, that does, see, my feeling is all this stuff should work without question. Right. Yeah. The only time it should not work is when it's part of the drama, part of the actual story. Right. I'll give you an example. In, in Star Trek V, Star Trek V is rightfully considered one of the worst. Right. <laughs> uh, they have that silly business with um, uh, Jimmy Doohan, Scotty, and Michelle Nichols uh, having an affair or something. Uh, she kisses him at some point. Anyway, uh, there's a scene towards the end of the film where he's uh, on his way to engineering or whatever, and uh, he says some funny line, and then he hits his head on a beam and falls down. Yeah. And that's knocked out. You don't do that. And that, that sort of accident that takes a character out of the story, that's not the way you tell these type of stories. If he gets knocked out, it's because of something that happened. happened. The enemy did it. The villain did it. Yeah, not because he's stupid enough to get hit. <laughs> yeah. The guy is supposed to know the ship better than anybody, and he gets hit in the head with a you know the low-hanging beam. So that, that that's you have to make sure that everything that happens in the story is actually a part of the story, not right, just yeah. so, because otherwise, what what could you know if you would like Captain Kirk gets out of that little pod thing when he's in San Francisco at the beginning and uh, some other pod ship comes by and runs him over. And it's, oh, we yeah. got to get a new Captain Kirk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> People don't get hit by cars. They don't fall into holes. Or they, you know, they don't get hit by meteorites or anything like that. That's not the story you're telling. You're telling yeah. a story that is about the consequences of space exploration. And if you want those things to have any meaning, it has to actually, uh, that groundwork has to be laid for those things. So anyway, uh, I don't know what we, what were we talking about? <laughs> I'm not sure now. <laughs> Sometimes I go on too long. Uh, I don't know how Nurse Chapel knows uh, Ilya so well that she knows that that headdress is the thing that she likes to wear oh yeah yeah i forgot about that scene i don't, don't know how she, she uh is another instance of a character uh who doesn't really have any shape they're just sort of throwing her lines because somebody needs to say this yeah this has uh, to happen so. <laughs> like uh the character who played yeoman rand in the original series uh, she's in the transporter. Why she's in the transporter room? Uh, that I don't know. Uh, I forget her name. Do you remember her name? I do not. Uh, anyway, uh, they also in the transporter room, they have uh, sort of like crisscrossing metal planking, uh, metal uh, stuff on the floor. I don't know if you noticed the floor. I don't know why that would be necessary. Why, why in a ship like the Enterprise would you have what looks like... Uh, uh the floor that you would have on a, on a tuna boat or something yeah. uh, and they got the <clears throat> the guys working the controls they're behind 
shields in the transporter room. Uh, that that went in the space of one movie. That went, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a, what a dumb idea, right? So you can't talk. You can't have the people who are operating the transporter talk to the folks on the, on the pads on the platform. That's not good, right? No. You need you need to have your characters able to communicate with <laughs> yeah. each other. Right? Anyway, I think that I've beaten them up enough. I don't know if I have any other criticisms. I don't think I did either. But uh, Persis Combatter apparently <clears throat> just, uh, passed away uh, quite a quite a while ago. I think I think she died uh, over a decade ago. Uh, so she's not with us anymore. I, I'm sure you're aware of what happened to Stephen Collins. We we won't go into that as unpleasant, unpleasant business. Right. Uh, uh, um, DeForest Kelly has passed away. Jimmy Doohan's passed away. Leonard Nimoy's passed away. Uh, I think uh, Majel Barrett has passed away. Gene Roddenberry's passed away. Uh, uh, Mark, what's his Mark Leonard? He's 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 passed away, right? Yeah, he, I believe I believe he did. Yeah. He played the Klingon in the opening scene of this. Yeah, and he was he was and on he the original was series. On the, a couple of times on the original series. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he he played Spock's father, right? If I'm not mistaken. I believe so. Yeah, yeah. So he's passed away. Uh, who else is on the death list here? Uh, George is it Takei or Takai? George, I've always said Takei. He's still alive. He's still alive. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Michelle Nichols is still Michelle alive. Michelle Nichols is still alive. I think that's, a, yeah. They have some health problems yeah. now. Yeah, them and uh, Shatner, I think, the last three. Yeah. And Robert Wise passed away. Hal Bennett passed away. So, uh, yeah, there's, uh, I guess it's kind of nice that this film is getting some uh, appreciation from people, you know, because it, it was. You know, it does look like a big budget movie. It, oh, has yeah. its, it has its pleasures. The music music is nice. And it is kind of an interesting experience uh, if you're in the right frame of mind. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's fun to see the big, big shots of the Enterprise at the beginning, but it's just, it, there's too much of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always felt like kind of a, a, a spoil sport because I, one thing I would say about Douglas Trumbull's special effects is I never really felt the sense of size. Yeah, they look nice, and his effects work for two thousand one is terrific. Uh, but uh, with all the things he did, including Blade Runner, I never really felt the size of the things, and I never really felt the size of this model in the Enterprise. Even though apparently it ended up costing them a million dollars or more uh, to do, uh, it doesn't really feel as big as they are. You know, all the music would suggest. All right. Uh, but maybe that's just me. I don't know. Uh, I don't think any any of the V'ger stuff is th that visually spectacular. No. Uh, plenty of other movies that have had similar things. You know, I don't see why why anybody would be that terribly impressed with this. I mean, it's nice. I'm not knocking it. It's ple pleasant enough, but a, a story would have been nicer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think people should watch the movie. And I, if they enjoy it, that's great. It's a, it's an optimistic movie. Any movie that ends with uh, the, uh, the logo, the human adventure is just beginning. Getting, yep. That's something I can you know agree with and, and give my uh, full support to. Uh, so it's worth watching, and if it's available. Oh, one thing I want to did want to mention. I, I don't know if we covered this yet. Uh, the problem with normalizing of audio. Um, 
You know what uh, normalization means when when they do it to audio tracks? Yeah. Uh, I, I do it. I do it on this show. Okay. So you do. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> basically what it means for anybody that is listening to mm. us that doesn't know, it basically means you take the uh, loudest sounds and you lower them and you bring the lowest sounds up so that all the sound is in a, a narrow band. Uh, I think we did touch on this a little bit yeah. earlier. Uh, and so people who are watching this on Paramount Plus may be uh, a little disappointed by the sort of weird sound that it has at times because it brings that normalization process brings out some strange background sounds. So that's kind of disappointing. Yeah. And, and I don't know. I don't know if this is going to get a physical release or not. Well, I hope so. I, yeah. I think it, it's worthy of a physical release. And I would really be surprised if they didn't, because just judging from the reaction of people online, a lot of folks like the movie, and I think yeah. they would probably want to own that. Uh, and, and up to this point, uh, there are probably people that have probably half a dozen different DVDs already. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so one more probably wouldn't hurt. Uh, I never bought the motion picture because I was so disappointed. It was, you know, a very disappointing experience for me uh, to, when I went to see it the first time. So I never, never purchased the, uh, the DVD or the VHS tape. Or right. I have, I have VHS and DVDs for all the other movies, but not, <laughs> not for the motion picture because I, I did buy the soundtrack album though. Right. So, yeah. So I did my part, and I bought the program. So that's uh, yeah. <laughs> They got my money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I recommend people watching it. Like I said, when I watch it, I enjoy it. We, we've, we've done this with other movies. You watch it and enjoy it. And when you're going to talk about it, you're just, you start picking it apart. But it, yeah. I mean, it, it's good. I like it. Yeah. I hope nobody would uh, allow our comments to uh, ruin the movie for them. Yeah. I don't see why it should. I know I've had that experience. Where I mean, I, it's what it. That's forty years old at this point, right? That's this was the fortieth anniversary. Is well, that what the, is that what this release out is? Seventy nine, so it's eighty. Uh, yeah, I guess it's close to forty yeah. years, 30, 40 years, something like that. It's a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, but uh, sometimes, if you if you feel a sort of affection for a film, particularly if it is a flawed film, you don't want anybody saying anything nasty about it. And I, I don't mean to be nasty because I'm absolutely yeah. completely in sympathy with with. Uh, with Star Trek, you know, and I, uh, all the original characters. In fact, one thing I would say, based on my friend's reaction to the film, uh, was uh, he was impressed by the fact that you were seeing these people on, yeah. on the screen. There is something extraordinarily powerful about seeing Kirk and Spock and McCoy, <laughs> all those people together <laughs> on the screen, in their roles, you know. So Spock almost is like a religious icon, you know. Right, yeah. It's impossible to see him uh, uh, appear on the screen in this and not feel something, you know. Uh, so that is another important thing. We get an opportunity to see this iteration of the series that never went on to anything. They right. continue to make movies, but it's a com really completely different thing. Uh, but this is uh, so like a little standalone, this little chapter. Uh, it, it almost gives you an insight into uh, the, the development of a franchise, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if there was any other uh franchises like this i mean star wars was beginning to be that uh but star trek to go from being a tv series to being a series of movies and then to go back to tv and TV, have yeah. several different tv <clears throat> series it, it must be the most committed uh, f fandom oh, in, yeah. in in uh 
you know, in the world. Uh, so I guess we're always going to be getting new versions of Star Trek, as we've talked about on this show. I'm not crazy about the stuff they're doing nowadays. Doing that, yeah. But uh, if they look back to this movie and they draw some inspiration from uh, the ideology, the philosophy of it, uh, maybe not so much the storytelling technique, right? Uh, that would probably be a good thing to get back to that. I would like to see it. I'd like to see more of the old Star Trek. Yeah, well, uh, William Shatner would probably still be game, but I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it might be one of those things where maybe it's time to finally say that's something of a bygone age. Maybe we should come up with the modern equivalent without. Yeah, you know, well, I was thinking about like the new, you know, the, the, the newer streaming series that they have now, Picard and <clears throat> all that. And I'm like, I don't understand why they need to stick with the Enterprise or with these same characters. Why can't they make? There must be there must be millions of other ships that they could do stories of. You know what I'm saying? Like, still call it Star Trek. Yeah, just do a different different ship. Well, they uh, <laughs> uh, they they should be prepared to do that because they yeah. have done it before, right? They did Voyager and Deep Space Nine and Next right, Generation yeah. and Enterprise, and uh, uh, so. It shouldn't be hard. It's just that we're living in an age now where the style of the storytelling that's popular uh, doesn't really suit these types of stories, in my opinion. Yeah. Here, uh, here's an idea that I had a few years ago. <clears throat> and I was, I was like, this would be perfect for like the CW. You just do a, a show about Starfleet Academy and you make it, you know, about a group of teenagers attending the Academy and you just do their, you know, you just do that. 90210 version of Star Trek. <laughs> right. I don't well, understand why no one's done that yet. Well, this one of these cartoon series, I think they have uh, at least one cartoon series on now. Uh, that is, oh, the Lower Decks? I yeah. That's what it's that's called. Kind of similar to that idea. And I know they were talking about doing a, a Starfleet Academy movie at some point. Uh, I'm not sure if it was after the third one or after the fourth one that they said they might try that. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, I suppose anything, if you have good stories, then that's all that's uh, important. I think that one of the mistakes they make is they spend too much time explaining why all these characters are together. We don't need yeah. them. Put the folks on a ship, get it out to space, and let's get on with it, for <laughs> sake. I mean, you know, whatever story they come up with, whatever explanation, it's all going to be nonsense anyway. Yeah. So let's not. When the first Star Trek came on the air, it was full blown, right? There was not, oh, we're going to have to travel over there to get on the Enterprise. This next ship was leaving. No, get on the ship. You're on the ship. Yeah, there was no exposition. There was no, let's spend 10 minutes with each character to introduce them to you. You learned who they they were as the show progressed. Exactly. Starts uh, right at the beginning with with, uh, Commander Pike Pike, uh, commanding the ship and, and... all the uh, uh, the details, the things that the audience had to sort of figure out, from, figure out, yeah, from uh, from watching, uh, completely different from what Lost in Space did, which which was done at the same time and had a sort of traditional approach of we got to introduce the characters and where are they going, what the right. mission is, and see them take off, and then something goes wrong, and then they get lost in space. None of that. That's not that's not the type of story they were telling. With Star Trek, they wanted to have a platform so they could do these individuals. So go to different planets, meet different aliens, and settle their hash. Yeah. <laughs> and the only way you can do that is if you have your characters all set up, right? It's like if you were doing a detective show, and every episode 
you had to explain how the person how, became yeah. a detective. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that's not the way these things should be done. But anyway, so fortunately, they uh, maybe we can do another episode about uh, Wrath of Khan. Oh, yeah. I'd uh, love to. But uh, that they definitely, with the next three movies, they definitely improved. Uh, improved enormously, yeah. So, so that's a good thing. But I should also say, and then I'm compelled to add, I never felt that any of the movies, any of them that they ever did, uh, even including the new ones, were as good as the best episodes of the original, original series. series. Yeah, the best episodes of the original series and the best episodes of the Next Generation are better than any of the movies. Any the movies, yeah. And I say that <laughs> with all the affection and love that I have for the movies. It's just that those types of stories work better as episodic television, in my opinion. Oh yeah, yeah. Some of those old episodes are just spectacular they're really good <laughs> and it's, it's surprising to me in watching even some of the earliest episodes like charlie x charlie x is a great episode and the performances from shatner and nimoy and uh, deforest kelly terrific uh they were that good that early on that was like the second show to air you know so uh, that and a doomsday machine and uh, uh there's a couple of others that are famous city on the edge of forever which we already mentioned yeah. Those are terrific. Doomsday Machine, I always thought was like perfect. You know, if, if they could have done that as a movie, that would have been incredible, right? Yep. I mean, in, in a sense, this movie is kind of like the Doomsday kind of, Machine. Yeah. <laughs> just had all the drama and excitement uh, and suspense taken out of it. Yeah, I like the fun episodes, like the you know, the Harry Mudd episodes. and Mudd's Women. Those are, oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, The Trouble with Tribbles. Trouble with Tribbles is a good one. And I know that Quentin Tarantino is a fan of a piece of the action because he was talking about doing something similar. <laughs> yeah. uh, would have been interesting to see what he could have come up with. But uh, yeah, the comedy episodes, uh, and I guess that ended up in the movie series. They did that with The Voyage Home. Uh, the comedy episodes were proof that uh, those, those were characters that were familiar enough to the audience. They were fleshed out enough so you could actually have fun with them. Yeah. I think even in the... Uh, the the first season, the first series they done recently on the streaming, what was it called? Uh, uh, was it Discovery? Dis no, was it Discovery? Anyways, one one of the newer seasons, they actually brought back the Harry Mudd character. Oh yeah, yeah, he was played by the guy from The Office, Rain Wilson, I think. <clears throat> Is he supposed to actually be the same Harry Mudd? Or? Yeah, I, bl I believe so. Yeah, because yeah. the show takes place, I guess, in the past or something. I don't really remember. I didn't really watch it, but. I just remember seeing him playing that character. Well, in a way that becomes a crutch and also a handicap for the new shows. They're constantly digging through the old things to try to bring back, try, like for instance, the fact that they're advertising the fourth season of Picard while the third season is still on. Right. Uh, sort of an indication, you know, because the fourth season supposedly has all the original actors coming back. They're sort of saying, yeah, these episodes that are airing right now, they're kind of <laughs> Yeah. Hang on. <laughs> You know the reinforcements will be arriving soon. Yeah. Plus, I think one of the one of the shows is going. Its new season is going back to Commander Pike. Will yes. be the and I'm like, Ooh. well, it's a, yeah, it's. A, <laughs> I guess that's the concept of that show. Yeah. Uh, I I can't remember any of the names of the of the new shows. I used to be very good at remembering yeah. <laughs> different versions, but uh, I think it's Star Trek Discovery. Is Discovery? It may be. Yeah. That's the first one they did, right? I think so. And then they did. Picard, 
And now they have another one called Strange New Worlds or something. Strange New Worlds. I think that's the one that's going to have Commander Pike. Maybe right. that's it. Yeah. I wish them luck, but I think the biggest handicap they have is that they got the wrong guy as the showrunner. That Kurtzman oh, yeah. guy is the same guy that did the Mummy movie. Yep. And, uh, you know, I don't know why they picked him. I don't know how he managed to get that job. I have no idea. He must uh, have had a, he must have pitched him a really good idea and then didn't follow through with it. I guess well, he has some, <laughs> he has some talented writers. Uh, uh, one of the guys, I forget his name, the author, uh, wrote that superhero novel that won the Pulitzer prize or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he's one of the writers on Picard. Uh, but, uh, and, and as we've said before, I, I, as I've said before on previous episodes, I don't really watch these things. I just watch Rib Letter Media's that, reviews. That's what I do. I just watch them talk about Picard. <laughs> I, I get it. I get the gist of it from that. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'd rather that they suffer rather than I have to suffer. Yeah. That. Yeah. We can just look at the clips that they put up. <laughs> but the world being in the shape that it's in now, I'm practically on the verge uh, on a moment by moment basis. I have to find a reason to not just jump out of a window or <laughs> yeah. cut my wrists. So the last thing I want to do is be putting on the, the sort of terrible, uh, depressing, grim, sophomoric garbage that uh, that they've been turning out lately. I hope I didn't put that too strongly. Hope I didn't offend anybody. I'm sure it's fine. It's just that I, you know, it's not not for me. It's not for everybody. Yeah. I, I want to see an adventure. Yep. I don't want uh, this grim, dark stuff. I want to see more of Andrea the Android. <laughs> who was he from I, I that was the that was the the woman from the uh oh yes yes i'm surprised she doesn't have a her own show but yeah, uh, taking through the archives <laughs> that'd be a good one to bring back i'm waiting for the for them to bring back that funny poodle yeah um, with the emony and with the little antenna oh yeah ah. had, the, had the unicorn <laughs> unicorn horn on it yes yes <laughs> that's what i'm waiting for yeah a show that's just that pool and a bunch of tribbles. Yep. And what Got they'll it. do is though they'll uh they'll just recreate that exact thing in CGI. <laughs> <laughs> they'll just create a dog in a costume in CGI. Well, that's probably you're probably right about that. Because <laughs> you know there aren't any poodles anymore. There anymore, are. yeah. You can't get that costume. Nobody can make that anymore. <laughs> it's too bad they don't have any behind the scenes footage of them shooting the poodle scene. The, yeah. How they could provoke the poodle to being vicious. <laughs> and, yeah. A vicious poodle with antenna and a, and a unicorn horn. Yeah. See how many times it peed and shit on Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be worth... Uh, I know they're doing... A, 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 I think it's Netflix is doing a, a thing about the making of The Godfather, a drama about the I think that. Yeah, I think that's uh, Paramount Plus is putting that up there. Oh, is I that think, right? Yeah, I've seen the trailer oh. for it. Maybe they'll do a making of a drama about Trek. the making of Star Trek. Yes. Yeah. Have a whole episode about the portal. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. <laughs> All right. So we both recommend everybody watch Star Trek, the motion Absolutely. picture. Yes. Now, now I know you said that you watched it on the Paramount Plus. Are you a, did you subscribe to it or is it just something they're offering for like free? No, no, you have to subscribe. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I actually, they, they have both the original version of Star Trek motion picture and the new version. New version. Right so on. you have the opportunity to compare the two and to see if there's any significant difference. All right. Uh, and they have all the other movies in the original series, yeah. at least a couple of the, a couple of the newer ones. So right. it's, it's, uh, I guess if you're a Star Trek fan, 
you really it's worth, worth getting that yeah it's worth getting and you don't have any choice because <laughs> nope. i don't think it's on any other channels or any other streaming platforms unless you want to wait for a physical which i'm i'm sure they probably will eventually do a physical release but they yeah. probably they're probably trying to get people to sign up for their paramount plus first yeah it's kind of hard to know what the status of physical media is right now because with the pandemic and with a lot of retailers that may have closed um I guess everything would have to be sold through Amazon or, you know, online. You still get them at Walmart. <laughs> oh, that's right. I'm speaking to yeah. somebody who knows better than I do, but do they still have a significant uh, physical media yep. collection? Yeah. Still get new DVDs in every Tuesday. Well, new, release, be, new releases every Tuesday. You must be happy for that. <laughs> yeah. right? a chance to see. Uh, yep. you get, and you get a discount, I trust. Yeah, I do. I do get a discount. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Well, I'm sure if I was in your situation, my walls would be packed with, <laughs> yeah. with DVDs. But, uh, but for the average person, it really is hard to, uh, although this is one of the reasons why I mentioned that uh, problem with the audio. Uh, that's something that's always going to be. Going, uh, yeah. They're going to be adding that normalization thing to all the movies that they put up. So if you want to hear the original sound mix, you got to get the physical media version. Right, yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't care about that, but it matters to me. And it makes a big difference if you're, especially if oh, you're it does, yeah. You're using headphones so very distracting so and i'm going to try to capture that so i can demonstrate it at some point and, okay uh, and i i'll add that to this video or whatever all right that'll work all right so where can everybody find your movies at well uh demon resurrection is on 2b tv it's pay-per-view on amazon amazon prime it's on zumo tv it's on a bunch of other platforms you know check your local listings and my uh, first film uh, I've remastered is it's called Sleepless Nights. It's a vampire movie in the style of Dark Shadows and that type of thing. And I've just finished uh, re-editing it, and that'll be out hopefully on all the same types of streaming platforms uh, within the next couple of months. I'm just putting some final touches to it. So, but that's uh, Demon Resurrection, Sleepless Nights. There are Facebook pages for both. There are Twitter pages for both unless Elon Musk decides to uh, throw me off. Right. Uh, uh, and there, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter under my name, so people can find me there, and uh, you know they'll probably be very disappointed. Yeah, I just re-watched uh, Demon, Res Demon Resurrection the other night. Watched it oh, on did TV. you? Even though I got the physical, I watched it on Tubi. That way you can get a little bit of money from it. I appreciate that. <laughs> I, I hope everybody will follow suit. Yeah, watch it on Tubi. Just keep it on in constant rotation on Tubi TV. I still enjoy it still great oh thank you i appreciate that i i think it uh i don't know if this other film sleepless nights is going to be quite as impressive to people as that because it's you know, from an earlier time i mean the movie's almost 25 years old uh so uh but i'm glad to hear the demon resurrection is still still getting good reviews oh yeah still enjoy it i like it too yeah <laughs> <laughs> i would hope that you would yes it might be kind of hard to continue to sell your movie if you didn't really care for it. That would be really torture. <laughs> I mean, Demon Resurrection is pretty old, too. So if I had gone the last decade talking about Demon Resurrection, I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> that'd be really, really hard. I'd have to be a much better actor. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, you can find uh, this show on uh, all the major streaming platforms. Just you do a search for on Google. We pop up, all of them will pop up there. And then you can get, uh, of course, the video versions will be on your YouTube channel. Okay. And you can get uh, all of our merch at our T Public store. And at the time of this recording, everything right now is 35% off. So oh, 
thirteen dollar yeah. tees. Go get them. That's a good deal. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. those are good. Yep. So the next time we do an episode, we're going to all have to be wearing all the merch. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to get a coffee mug now. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I see you got a Captain Kirk in the background there. Yeah, I showed it off on another another episode that we done, but this is, I don't have anything from the like motion picture, but this is from the original series. Uh, well, that's impressive. He looks I like mean, it, actually... it didn't come out. I think it's a reissue. I think this came out in... Uh, this was this was released in '94, but and does it does he have the girdle on underneath the costume? I think he does. Yeah, it's, it's it, was an, it, it was an accessory. Because <laughs> I see a little, I see a little band around his waist. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, that's I, nice pick, I picked it up at a convention for five dollars. Oh, that's a good deal. Yeah, and you're keeping it in its original packaging. You have to. Is... You have to. <laughs> They drum you out of the Federation if you open yeah. the package? Same with my, I got a Tom Baker action figure still packaged up also. <laughs> oh, cool. Well, someday your your children or children's children will be able to make a little money by selling well, all, they all sell your for, stuff. They could sell it for $10. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'd always dreamed about maybe getting it autographed, but I can tell that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. So You want to get Shatner's autograph? Yeah, yeah. Well, they got that so regimented now. I mean, it's like, you know, you, you like what they were doing with Stan Lee towards the end. Yeah. You, know, you got to pay a lot of money to. Just even, know, yeah, great, just even great. get, yeah, the, the event itself probably cost more than I would want to pay for just to get in the scene. But I've always been a fan, even before the movies, I was always a fan of like Shatner. Oh, yeah, he's very From like good. other other stuff that he'd done, so. It's uh, it was a it, sort of a common thing, and I guess it is even now to sort of say that he's a ham and he overacts. Yeah. But it's a type of uh, style of acting which really is an old type of melodramatic acting that was that was the way the acting was done in that period that he was w working. Yeah. But when you when you see him in some things, you realize, and I think it's true of the original series as well. He's one of the reasons why it works. Oh yeah. You know, you have some of those scenes in Star Trek where he's standing stripped to the waist, talking to a bunch of brains. And you say, if this guy wasn't really a great actor, <laughs> yeah. this wouldn't work. You know, yep. it would just be hilarious. Uh, but he makes it work. And it's yeah. a com complete commitment, the complete sincerity of it, no matter how over the top it may seem. It's authentic. It has, a, a, a you know, he means it. Yeah. And of course he, and I guess, I guess because of his, what, what everybody thinks is like his, you know, his overacting, he comes off really good in comedies. Like when yes. he plays like a comedy, yeah, he's like, he's really good in those. Even in those comedy episodes of the original <laughs> series, he was very Yeah, funny, yeah. Right? That's true, yeah. I said, there's a channel on YouTube where the person is posting all these things that Shatner did before Star Trek. And <coughs> a lot of them are episodes from... Uh, TV dramas like these sort of plays, one-shot plays that they would do back then. Yeah, I saw a couple of them. He was really good. You know, the whole episodes usually focus on his character, and he's he's terrific in them. But it's that old style of acting. Yeah, it's not like like the naturalistic type of acting, the rather boring acting that you get now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was also in uh, a pilot for a Nero Nero Wolf uh, TV series. Uh, is it Nero Wolf? Is that the name of the character? I think so. Yes. Yeah. Nero Wolf, the detective who stays at home and he sends his assistant out to do all the detecting work. Yeah. And he comes back to him with all the details and Nero Wolf figures it out. Well, Shatner was the guy that he sends out to uh, 
collect all the data that he's going to use to solve the crime. And that's terrific. And it's very entertaining. You know, that's what I, that's the, the distinction I would make. It's not a question of what's realistic. It's a question of what is entertaining. Entertaining, yeah. You know? He's fun to watch. Even oh, yeah. in terrible movies, he's enjoyable to watch. Uh, there was one that he did about uh, folks on a plane where there's some sort of uh, supernatural artifact that's in the cargo hole and it's starting to cause all sorts of strange stuff happening. It was a TV yeah. movie and he's playing, I don't think it was like an ex-priest or something. He's the reason to watch the movie. Yeah. You know? <laughs> always entertaining. So, and then that doesn't mean that he's always on target. Sometimes, yeah. he you know, uh, there was one that he did in, in his lean years where he plays a sort of psychopath uh, character. Uh, and they have them all dressed up in these sort of silly costumes, like uh, colorful sweaters and things. Right, and yeah. Just looks ridiculous, and his performance is, you know, not quite, not quite there. But otherwise, he's he's good. Yep. All right. So we'll uh, we'll just end this one with our William Shatner praise. <laughs> <laughs>